user Wi-Fi connected mobile devices as, as long as they're in airplane mode. Uh, and four members, a revised draft agenda was circulated. The revision is due to propose, two proposed agenda items, an urgent uh, statutory rule on the financial assistance corona regulations and small business uh, support grant scheme, ineligible payments. Both are scheduled for consideration of item at agenda 16 and 17, respectively. Members, are we content to revise with this, proceed with this revised agenda? Agreed. I advise members that officials giving oral evidence on agenda items 5 and 7 are the same officials. And members, if we're content to move through the agenda item 6, uh, take agenda item 6 pensions before item 5 to take this into account means that the officials aren't necessarily hanging around unadvisedly. Are we content? Great. <coughs> if members are content to proceed through the agenda, uh, first of all, there are no apologies. And I note Matthew's not here. So. Uh, there are no apologies noted. I'd like to move on to the second item of the agenda as the declaration of interest. Are there any declarations of interest to be made by any members? Respect to my bill. In respect to your bill. Uh, members, I wish you to be made aware that I today raised a complaint with the Commissioner of Standards about uh, one of the members of our committee who was in receipt of a small business grants loan, or his office was in receipt of a small business grants loan and had made no declaration of that interest, even though we had LPS in front of us three times and the Sorry, Minister of two times. I'm just not sure what item of the agenda this is on. I mean, you're entitled to do whatever you... Correct. It's on, it, is, it is an issue to do with declaration of interest. And I think it's appropriate that all members of this committee make it abundantly clear right. that when but we are, are to... You, are you declaring an interest? No. No. Enough, I do not have to. I, I, I as the chairman. Sorry, you're not declaring an interest. I don't know. I mean, you can't declare an interest for somebody else. This is not a question of declaring an interest. This is an interest for all the members of the committee to the standards we expect of this committee. That if we are do, dealing with an issue that's substantive, and those issues have to be raised, particularly in front of officials, we're expecting the maximum of openness and transparency from officials. I would expect the same from members of this committee. Yeah, I'm sure all members are aware of that. <coughs> And can I just comment as well as for the chair? I resent the implication there that uh, in your statement that in some way that uh, uh, that that same commitment in terms of openness and transparency uh, is not existing in my part because that is not the case. And could I just make this point as well too? And I think it's about time maybe this committee and you in particular, chair, uh, should take it on board. That uh, as a result of the likes of the Nolan programme, which you appeared on, and were available to appear on, and were available to make contributions to, yet no, you didn't seem to be available to uh, the same Lady Walster whenever they were talking about uh, your party reappointing uh, a serial drunk driver as a councillor uh, in my own area again. But you weren't available to make comment on that. And can I just make you aware, and probably every other member of the committee as well too, that uh, that Nolan programme, its guests were on it, and that within even this committee, that uh, much of that is subject to legal considerations. And I think that the clerk of this committee should give clarity on that point as well too. And just from a point of memory, uh, I cannot remember any member on that particular day when we had people from LPS or from any other organisation that appeared before this committee declaring that they were ratepayers. 
Chair, did I make Sorry, just through the Chair. First of all, uh, Jim Wilson. Well, well, first of all, Mr Chairman, you're entirely in order because <coughs> the issue that you raised was de declaring with three separate hearings with the Director of LPS. On three separate occasions, the member concerned should have declared sorry, the fact. Sorry, point of order. I would like to know what it is we're discussing. I don't see anything. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, we're either discussing draft minutes from matters or matters This is a declaration of interest. So you've asked if any members have any declarations to, to make. That members that would then make it. I don't think we need a discussion no, on declarations. No, we do. No, we do because this is an issue. As a chair, I'm ruling on this. And yes, members wish to make comment on this because members are suitably disgusted by the pr process that has been ongoing, and they wish to make those comments. So, therefore, I am allowing this Can comment. I ask the clerk for guidance on this? I mean, we are discussing an item that, as far as I can understand, is not on the chair, or is not on the agenda. And I, I have no reason, I, I do not think it is the chair's right to uh, do anything more than ask members if they have any declarations of interest to make. If they have not, then I think we should move on and go through the agenda. I mean, that is the purpose of having an agenda. I have no idea what it is we're discussing, and I would like the, the clerk of, of the committee to make a ruling on this. You've put the clerk of the position in an invidious position. I, as chairman, yes. have raised this issue, and other members in this committee wish to make comment but, on and this. And what is the issue that you've raised? I mean, I mean you, you're, you're entitled as chair to ask if members have a declaration of interest to make. That's up to members to either uh, raise that or not. Your job as chair then is to move on. Yep. My job as chair is to make sure this committee is run effectively. And this committee is run in op with openness and transparency in accordance with the rules of this assembly. That is my job, and that should be the member of all these members of this committee as well. And go ahead, yeah. Mr. Wells. No, we, had, we had a hearing with the, the Director of Land and Property Services here on three occasions. It would have been appropriate if someone was sitting on £10,000 that they'd received in a small business grant, which they shouldn't have got, <coughs> that that should have been declared. I realise there's sensitivities about this, but there's something going on these grants and certain constituency offices, which the Commissioner for Complaints uh, and the PAC, etc., will deal with, and we'll find out the truth. But the very least that Mr McHugh should have done is said, I've got £10,000, I shouldn't have got it, and I haven't paid it back. That would be a declaration of interest. That wasn't done, so therefore the, the Chairman is perfectly in order to raise this, because obviously, had he done so, that would have painted his questions in a very different light. Uh, yeah, uh, I suppose it's predictable that there would be an attempt at distraction by Mr McHugh uh, about this issue, raising totally irrelevant issues about the return of some councillor to public office, when the man in the spotlight is the man who told the Norman show that he had, they had difficulties ascertaining to whom to pay this back and in getting it back, and yet on three occasions had the very gentleman who could answer any such question, if there were such queries, sitting in front of him, failed to raise it, and failed to raise it either as a declaration I have to interrupt. So, no, you do not interrupt. Yes. You do not interrupt. Somebody else is speaking. Well, I point, of order. point of order. Malaysia uh, McHugh is a member of this committee. He's not under investigation by yes, this committee. Yes. I mean, did, did, for example, I, I read uh, this week in papers sent round that two other members of this 
uh, committee are facing a complaint before the standards of uh, complaints procedures. You know, have they raised declarations of interest when we're discussing this item? I mean, I, I, this committee isn't—it isn't the job of this committee to investigate any member on it for anything. If, if individual members want to pursue uh, other issues, they're well entitled to do so. I mean, I think the job of this committee is to deal with the agenda items that we have to deal with. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. Let's go ahead, Mr. Alistair. Uh, I, was just well, I want to point, point it, I'm putting it on record that I have asked for the clerk to make a ruling on this, and I've yet to receive that ruling. Clark does, make make a ruling. Ruling. Clark does not make a ruling. <coughs> I am the chairman. I have judged that. But, but chair, it resolved that matter. Could I, could it, would it assist if I propose that we move to item 11 on the agenda, which is the chairperson's business, and that we do that now? The proposal is that we move to chairperson's business under item 11. Agreed. All those in favour say aye. 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 Those against? Move aye. on to item number 11 on the, on, the, uh, on the agenda, chairperson's business. The chairperson's business is, is the issue surrounding the issues of a declaration of interest that should have been made to LPS during this committee. Are any other comments? Vice Chair, would you like to make comments? Yes, Chair. Just on this, it's, it's very clear, and it's, it's 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 wrong. It's wrong for the members here to tie and disrupt uh, the chairperson as he chairs this committee meeting, and as he goes through his brief. It's wrong that members here would disrupt that. And that's uh, and what are they what are they scared of? Let's everybody have their say on this issue, which is a very serious issue, which is a very serious matter that is within the kernel of this committee because it involves LPS. Uh, so to try and, to try and uh, muffle the members of this committee is completely and utterly wrong. And I, I, I stand 100% foursquare behind you, Chair, in this regard. There's an old Irish proverb, and it goes like this. Some people make things happen. Some watch things happen while others wonder what has happened. And I think that the members of this committee need to make sure that we're on the right side of that Irish proverb and we know exactly what has happened here. And it would be a, a grave injustice and shirking uh, war responsibility if this committee did not pursue this issue with LPS. And of course, any member then that they're in, involved needs to stand up and be counted and give an account of themselves. You do that usually by declaring an interest. And that, that allows you in this committee, a scrutiny committee, that allows you the cover to, first of all, be transparent and open, but then to have the freedom to ask the questions that you need to ask Correct. and receive the answers that you need to receive, not only for yourself but for the population out there and also the constituents that you're meant to represent, your whole constituency. So let's be as open and as transparent as possible. I, I'm quite annoyed today in the fact that when we go ahead to try and, first of all, debate this out and then try and get answers around this, that there'll be actually members of Sinn Féin who are trying to disrupt and agitate within this very scrutiny committee, and that would be the wrong way to go. And I would advise members to pull back from that and to let everyone have their speak, and then let's get to the bottom of this. This will inevitably be an investigation by this committee. Let's try and progress it positively. Thank you. Okay. Through the Chair, can I just make the point again, and already it has been stated on here that I received 
£10,000 and hadn't done anything about it. That all of this is subject to legal considerations. Now, and I actually challenge the person or any other member in this committee that chooses to make a comment that in any way uh, is along those lines to step outside of the legal cover of this committee, step out there uh, and let me record them saying it. Let them say it out there. Now, sitting in here is quite easy for you because of the fact that you feel that you're covered by that we are. Uh, legal cover. Yeah, that's exactly right. But through the chair. Getting all, I say to you and to any other member too, step outside this and make the same allegation. I think, um, just through the commentary, if we've noted from the Department of Finance that the Department of Finance did make a payment to the office, your office. And the Department of Finance is the, is the department that we supervise, and that is the department that we bring into account. And again, in the questions of openness and transparency, there was the opportunity on many occasions to point directly to the LPS and indeed to the Minister himself to declare an interest. And that did not happen. Matthew. Thank you, Chair. I would just like to briefly say that um, I have made comment about this outside the Chamber. I, um, uh, when it comes to declaring an interest, I am not sure exactly what the correct procedure is, but it is entirely legitimate for people comment upon the fact that uh, a member of this committee has been, you know, there is an issue that has happened around erroneous payment. I'm not imputing anything about the member in question, but clearly that is a matter of substantial public comment and controversy. And if it wasn't, then uh, MLA, an MLA would not have resigned, a member of the Irish Senate would not have resigned. That prima facie is evidence that this is a matter of public interest. And I would also say that it doesn't help um, the tone of the committee if um, people are, you know, it's, it's implied that people are, um, uh, are doing some, something somehow malign simply by, by, by pointing these issues out. So um, clearly there will be various procedures that um, go on from this, but all I would say is it's, entirely legitimate, uh, it's an entirely legitimate uh, context and uh, place to make these comments, particularly as others have said, given we have had the Chief Executive of LPS in front of us on several occasions. Thank you. Any other comments? I think we can. Sorry, Jim. Yes, I mean, there's something going on here that doesn't meet the eye. Um, uh, either about the way in which the grants were handled or the way in which constituency officers are being financed. I think there's huge public concern out there. And the fact that um, a former MP, uh, an MLA, and two party officials had to fall on their swords indicates to me that it's been even regarded seriously within the party in which it happened. Right. I, mean, I, I think I should make it clear, because there, there, there's a number of things going on. I mean, n nobody in Sinn Féin has defended the fact that this money hasn't, wasn't paid back swiftly. I think if you listen to the commentary of Mary Lou MacDonald uh, outside of this chamber and Michelle O'Neill inside this chamber, it is clear that nobody is condoning the fact that the, that the payments weren't returned swiftly. The payments have been returned and those responsible for the non-swift return of the payments have resigned. Yeah, it's not a helpful comment, but it does not through the chair. Sorry, Mr. Chairman, it doesn't deal with the dark shadow that hangs over the funding of certain constituency offices but, I mean, in this country. And I think we need to examine where public money is being spent, particularly in places like West Tyrone and Upper Ban and in Londonderry. So that being the case, I think this committee does need to dig deep into what's going on here. But that still doesn't, despite what you've said, Mr McGuigan, doesn't explain why a member sat in this committee who knew he had £10,000 resting 
in his account. Now, no one's saying he was wrong that he received that. And I want to make that absolutely clear. Mr McHugh was not wrong about receiving that money. What was wrong was it did apparently it was not returned immediately. And it was only returned because the Stephen Nolan show exposed the issue and then suddenly there was a dash to LPS to pay it back. Had Stephen Nolan not done that, then this money would never have been returned. And that's the yeah. suspicion the public have. So therefore, we as a committee need to investigate this issue because it's LPS money, it's Department of Finance money, and it's an issue that we sat and took three separate hearings on. And I do actually don't blame LPS either, by the way, because LPS, we were forcing them to try and get the money into the people who deserved it as quick as possible. But the folk who suddenly discovered they had a windfall should have been beating a path straight back to LPS to say, I want to return this money, and that didn't happen. So therefore, I believe that Mr McHugh has not give, been frank with this committee, and therefore, frankly, I'm even surprised he's still on the committee. I thought he would have done the decent thing and resigned. That's enough. That's enough, Mr Wells. Chair, uh, thanks very much. So I find myself here today, and like every other Wednesday that we come in, we are here to look at the workings and to discuss the Finance Committee and how all of those payments or whatever goes on within that department to discuss. I think this is a very important issue. Uh, it's one which has to be brought up under any other business, as, uh, as was so proposed. I think that it should be the first item on the agenda here, and I want it to be on public record that I support you, Chair, in bringing this forward and commend you for that, because that is our role. I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of the whole goings on, but I do know that we had LPS here three times and people had ample opportunity to find out if they didn't know themselves. I mean, I would find it impossible for my office to get 10, it's impossible. I, I couldn't have done it or I wouldn't have known the workings of it. So questions have to be asked for those that have got it and have rested in their account for eight months. I'm sorry. Okay. This is fit and proper for this committee to, to be looking at this. I, I just want to very, very, very briefly say, Chair, I, I don't want to imply at all, unlike some others in the committee, I don't want to imply any um, wrongdoing or malfeasance on the part of anyone in the committee. I'm certainly not doing that. What I am saying is that the principle that we are allowed to talk about this has to be upheld. Yes. Okay? There, is, um, there has been in the Oireachtas, in the Dáil over the last few days, quite intense scrutiny of the Thomist, as there should have been given issues around materials being leaking, and it is right that the main opposition party in the Dáil, in Dáil Éireann, which is Sinn Féin, has been pushing for that. Since this committee last sat, there has been substantial public controversy about mistaken payments made to Sinn Féin offices, and that's a blunt truth. Okay? It isn't good enough that we're not allowed to talk about it in the, here, in the, in the committee setting of the main committee which scrutinises the Department of Finance. That's all I want to say. Sir, final, final comment on this, yeah, and we yeah, need to sure. move on the agenda. My, my first utterance was all about the, the, the function and how we should be allowed to do this. The questions, I think, that need to be posed uh, to LPS, first of all, and I agree, I think it was with Jim Wells when he said that we were asking the LPS system, which is designed to bring money in, to push money out, so there are always going to be a lot of mistakes made, absolutely, so we'll always have to take that into context. But there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a funny thread running through this, the dialogue last week, and that was this. How is it that there are still MLA and MP and political officers paying their rates directly to LPS? Because surely, surely it is the Assembly, I think it's the Commission, 
Commission pays the rates that, from all that, our offices. That pays most of our rates. So, uh, how did LPS have those details? How did they get that money out? Um, and, and then, how many are actually paid? And the LPS should be able to tell us this. How many are actually paid through the Assembly finances? Which I think that is the proper situation. Uh, the LPS, LPS could not have paid me money no. through their system if they had tried. Um, so I, I, I'm interested to find that out from LPS. But we, we can't shirt around this issue. Mr McHugh, who sits in this committee and is, is as valued a member of this committee as any other member, uh, needs to ask questions around that account in West Tyrone. Uh, it's on public record, he said, or West Tyrone account. Uh, did he have access to that account? Can he use that account? Can he deposit money from that account? Can he, uh, can he put money in? Can he take money out? Um, all of that has to come out and be transparent. Uh, when did Mr McHugh know exactly uh, when that payment was made? How was he notified? LPS wouldn't have my details. How was he notified that that payment was made? What actions did Mr McHugh make then in trying to get that money paid back? Because that's not in doubt. Uh, who did he speak to within his party structures? Who then was tasked to do that? And then why did Mr McHugh not check on that on a very uh, consistent basis to ensure that that was completed? Uh, these are some of the things that, that are very much in the public interest and need to be shine a light on by this committee. Uh, so that, that's just some of the questions that, that need to be asked. And for the people who have resigned from Sinn Féin, were they paid members and employees of the party, paid via the Assembly? Or were they volunteers of branches? That, that's very important too, because they, if they're paid, well then that's money that's paid from the public purse. So again, all of this needs to be kneeled down, tied down, and opened up for the public consumption. Thank okay, you. Thank you very much, Professor. I think we'll move on from this. Uh, uh, I was wanting to make two. Sorry, just very short ones. Yes, I want to make two Gemma. proposals. One that we invite Mr. Snowden, Snowden to return to this committee, so that the committee can explore such issues as are deemed relevant about this matter. And secondly, that this committee should write a letter to Mr. Stephen Nolan amending him for the action which he took, which resulted in the return of £30,000 of public money to the public purse, which patently otherwise would not have been returned. Uh, there, are two proposals. there are two proposals on the table. Uh, first proposal is to invite LPS back to discuss this, and I think this also refers to agenda item 17, if I'm correct. Well, I raised it with you. Yes, yeah, so with the rest, yeah. So yeah. the agenda item 17. All those in favour of uh, uh, inviting LPS to come back and sort of discuss these specific issues, all those in favour say aye. 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 Those against? Uh, the second item, uh, I don't think it's appropriate to be writing to a member of the no. BBC, uh, whereas I could, understand the, I could understand the sentiment. But I do not believe it should be appropriate that we are writing to the BBC. Sorry, I, think, I, mean, I also think for accuracy uh, that I mean, this issue was first raised by the Auditor General. I mean, and, and actually, members of this committee uh, were lauding praise on both the Department for Finance yeah. and the LPS after the Auditor General had raised yeah. the very yeah. fact 
of 450 payments that shouldn't have been out there. So, I mean, I, I, I obviously understand for political purposes it's great to hone in on uh, the, the, the payments that went to Sinn Féin offices, unsolicited payments that went to Sinn Féin offices uh, that are now paid back, uh, rather than the, the overall merits of 450 uh, payments that were that were identified by the Auditor General from another department. I mean, I, 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 mean, I know the Finance Minister uh, schooled uh, Paul uh, in the Assembly the other day. I mean, I, I think his, uh, I think his verbosity on openness and transparency through, through, through the chair, yeah, through the chair, given you know the scandals of constituency offices in North Antrim uh, and you know. Uh, the scandals that have emanated from there, from within the DUP, uh, I find uh, laughable. I think uh, your, your comments are noted, and obviously for getting your political points across, you're very welcome to try and do that as well. But it doesn't take away from the substantive issue is that a declaration of interest was not made in this committee when LPS was here, which I think is the key point. Emma, you wanted to, or Gemma, you wanted Gemma, to come in? Um, no, my points have actually been covered now. Um, but I just think that, you know, are you going to get the 400 other people who got the payment by mistake? Are you going to get them in here and scrutinise in the way Paul Furry's up for talking to Malaysia? Uh, through, through, again, thank you for your comments, Gemma, and that would be duly noted. But Melissa is a member of this committee. I am aware and he of was an, he, and, he was a, and he was a member of the committee when the LPS was here. And it would have been, if any other member had been in a similar sort of situation and not made a financial declaration like that, that they'd actually been receiving a grant. That would be deemed to be something that was beyond the code, which is one of the reasons why I've reported militia to the Commissioner's standards. And on that, I'm assuming you've reported him as an MLA and not as the chair of this committee? Sorry again? You've reported him as an independent... Yes, as an MLA. I yeah, made okay. that clear when I, when I first made my comments. Okay. Not as the chairman, but as okay. an MLA. As you well know, the chairman can't do that. And indeed, as a, a committee can't do that, it must be done by an individual member, which I've so done. Can I make one brief point, Chair? Yep. Very brief, uh, which is just a point around um, around LPS. One of the things that would be useful to ask LPS is around. So, look in broad terms. There's no dispute, by the way, that this payment was made in error, yeah. you know, that it was unsolicited by um, Melissa or indeed anyone else who received it. I think there is a question uh, for LPS, which is a broader question, which is about. Like everyone knows they had to do these payments at extreme speed. Everyone knows. I think there's a broad acceptance that Ian Snowden and his team have worked very hard and yes. a lot of this stuff. But if some of the, if there are sort of basic due diligence errors around, for example, the name of ratepayer payees, including names of obvious names of political parties on uh, or or other people, it would just be helpful to know. That is a, a useful, legitimate thing to know, given that we know the ratepayer uh, system is likely or or could well is going to be used for. Um, Grant payments and COVID support in the weeks and months ahead. Okay, thank you very much, indeed. Yes, go ahead, yeah, Through the chair, quite clearly, you listened to the the Nolan programme, uh, apart from just appearing on, because the other mistake that you continue to make. My name's not Melissa, and Nolan keeps calling me the same. And I'm here long enough now for you to know my name is Melissa, a very different name in every respect. And I think you should pay attention to that. But Mr. Froude, clearly, he listens to the Nolan programme, but not all of it. And what he didn't listen to was to the known programme last Friday when he received a letter from my solicitor that answered many of the questions that he posed there now in terms of access to an account or anything else. There were no, 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 no down the line. So he needs to go back, listen to Nolan again, or find out from Nolan that information that he doesn't seem to have at the minute. So that's how informed that he is about this situation. Okay, thank you. Noted. 
I should move on to the next. Can I make story. a proposal? Oh, sorry. Can I make a proposal? That since this is a very important issue, and since everyone who has been questioned here or questions asked of here today should be given the right of reply, that I ask that this committee would offer Mr. McHugh the chance to present to this committee at the same time as LPS comes in order for him to give his views. I think that's absolute nonsense. That's ridiculous. Fairness, absolutely. Oh, sorry, to the chair. Why is that absolute nonsense? Malaysia McHugh is a member of this committee. He's not under investigation by this committee. If, if any individual member in this committee wants to report, as you have done, to the standards, that's their right. It's not the job of this committee to scrutinise or investigate or interrogate any member within it. I didn't say interrogate. I, I said offer, right, uh, an offer chair, a right of reply. Offer the right of reply to present to this committee. Uh, and I, to be, to be, I think that's fair. And I think I'm I, I actually doing the member a good turn. I make that proposal. Mr McHugh? I've, I've said what I've said, and I've made people aware that there's legal considerations here. And when all of that process is complete, we'll see where we're at then with it. Okay. Okay, let's move on to the next item. On the Sorry, agenda. Chair, before we move on, uh, are members content uh, LPS is due in on the 18th of November? Are members content that... Uh, Right to LPS to right suggest to LPS. that they want to cover an, an, an eligible payment. Eligible payment, yeah. And also sort of the processes um, where they were looking at uh, how they were working out about eligibility. And I think there might be something about repair ID and the issues to do with that. Yeah. Okay. Move on to the next thing. Uh, next item is draft minutes for proceedings. Draft minutes of the meeting of the 21st of October at page 5. Members, are we content that draft members are an accurate record of proceedings? So aye. Are we content for these to be published on the website? Great. Uh, draft minutes of proceedings to the 14th of October. And four minutes of the 14th of October required an amendment to the Function of Government Bill Clause by Clause Agenda Item to reflect Clause 12 as agreed subject to amendment rather than as drafted. Are we content to amend those minutes from the 14th of October? Content. There are no matters arising. Race. <laughs> More of an education than I thought you were going to get. Right. Um, uh, re review of the financial process. The papers related to the agenda item has been presented in hard copy, which I think we should all have here. We've all got your copy. And remind members to agree that agenda item will be considered, six will be considered next, but please. And Okay. Would you like me to use the time that was allocated or use less time? No, no, Ellen, just use the time, time you need. We're, we're not going anywhere any faster today. Okay. Thank you, Chair. So, um, the executive's review of the financial processes, um, we want to think about some key considerations for the committee going forward, but I would consider this the first effort to really start um, engaging with this um, because... Uh, for you to fully and effectively engage with the department and to ensure that the committee achieves what it is desirable um, so that it does um, meet its roles and responsibilities. The committee, um, I've compiled here a refresher of key developments that are relevant to the review because they date all the way back to 2008, two mandates. Um, and there was a lot of, um, by this, pr the preceding two committees, or three committees now, 
they, um, they did a lot of good work um, that this committee could benefit from and drive into the review of financial processes. So much of this presentation is about the past events and how they interrelate to the current events and will drive things going forward in the future. Um, and then there's a few basic issues to start engaging with this. Um, but for this to be done properly um, and uh, really achieve significant impact in um, informing and having more fit-for-purpose financial process, um, it would do well for the committee to be slow and deliberate and um, understanding the evidence trail that exists. Yep. So that brings me to the refresher. So from 2008 to 2012, there have been a number of significant developments, um, many of them driven by this committee, former committee, dating back to October 2008, um, 12 years ago. It compiled its first report into the inquiry role of the Assembly in scrutinizing the executive budget and expenditure, and that is where the journey basically began because two subsequent reports came from, followed on from that report. And each time, it, what the um, committee did in accordance with the terms of reference was to compile an evidence base looking at international best practice um, and unpicking what the financial arrangements are here to meaningfully understand them so that um, unlike the institutional arrangements under devolution, that the financial arrangements would be looked at properly going forward. Um, the efforts in October 2008 and in June 2010 of the committee then led on to um, efforts by the Department of Finance and Personnel um, where they responded to the second report of the committee. And again, this is constantly adducing evidence and trying to push things in a direction, um, the, the, um, the department in a direction. And the executive agreed um, then in February 2011. So that's building on the efforts of 2008. And then in 2011, the executive agrees to undertake a review into the financial process in Northern Ireland. Um, and the aim, basically, was to try to streamline the financial framework under devolution so it was more transparent, efficient, open to scrutiny, and accountable. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's always been extremely difficult, as the members would know, to reconcile the numbers around the budget, the estimates, and the accounts. Um, and that then makes it difficult um, to... Uh, to, to understand the figures. It, it can be very convoluted and confusing and a lack of transparency, which then interferes <coughs> arguably with the committee's ability to engage um, and to have clear line of sight to the, the relevant data. Um, so the executive, through engagement with this former committee, um, had agreed to try and see what could be done to synchronize. Um, the budget, the estimates, and the expenditure plans, the bills, rates legislation, account, so that there could be a coordinated approach. Quite ambitious, because you're really talking about taking things apart fundamentally. Um, so the committee and the department began a very long relationship, a back and forth on this, um, and due to various um, uh, political circumstances with the assembly being up and down, it potentially um, slowed the process a little bit of the engagement. Um, but in 
June 2011, um, started to see some significant progress being made, um, and that the department started to brief about the, the, the identifying the, difficult, the difficulties in the existing processes and the publications as well, and the access to the, um, the data that is published, that it is in an inaccessible format, and there's issues of timeliness. So in September 2011, um, the department um, updated the, um, the committee on the progress it had made since June 2011. Um, and there then subsequently, two months later, was a, a discussion paper that was issued that was built upon the interactions and the engagement and the independent work of both the committee and of the department. Um, and 15 initial recommendations came out of that. RAISE has done a lot of work in the past on these things, so I would suggest respectfully, Chair, that the, could we compile a pack Island. that people could then refer to instead of reinventing the wheel. We're content. Um, yep. Great. And then we can supplement with developments that have occurred since then as and when appropriate going forward. January 2012, there was a further report responding to the discussion paper that the department had issued in October, um, and I've embedded the link there if you would like to access it, but we can include that in the pack as well. And the importance of that report was that the committee had coordinated a response across all the statutory committees, um, and it led to increasing kind of coordinated activity amongst the statutory committees in terms of the financial process, whether it be the budget or the end year. Um, moving on about four years, uh, December 2016, um, or nearly five years, um, the executive agreed that um, now, the as the Department of Finance and Personnel, no longer department, uh, sorry, now is the Department of Finance, no longer the Department of Finance and Personnel, that it would take the review forward. Um, unfortunately, the Assembly had collapsed in January of 2017, but the Department still continued to engage across the departments, taking that review that had started way back in October um, 2011, trying to take that forward. Um, what they concentrated on was um, uh, the misalignment uh, of um, the documentation um, and starting to look for solutions and suitable structures that would enable them to reconcile the budget estimates and the accounts. Um, and they did a lot of that work from the 2017 with a departmental working group that was led by the Department of Finance, particularly the Public Spending Directorate. Jeff McGinnis probably played a central role. But also it was attended by the Audit Office. The Northern Ireland Audit Office had um, a delegated um, representative at all those meetings. Um, I'm sorry, that's just, if you move on to the next page. Yep. It's a typo. Um, 2018 to 2019, um, th this is when the assembly, there was a political hiatus, it wasn't fully functioning. The department developed, um, that departmental working group developed templates for estimates and accounts, and they had undertaken some kind of a dry run, I guess a trial, um, and they had completed it for the 2018-19 uh, spring supplementary estimates. And that whole exercise, um, they submit it to the audit office and then undertook a subsequent workshop to do learning from it um, to see what they could do going forward. 
but the following year they dropped the activity because they needed to focus on key services delivery. Um, the political uh, um, happenings at that time probably um, influenced it a bit. They then turned their attention to um, something called a budget builder tool. Need to learn more about it um, when engaging with a directorate. Um, and the tool, from what I understand, it's a public. It's for public. It came out of the um, public engagement process, and it's um, it's continuing to be developed and used. But it's to enable greater um, stakeholder engagement so that you can gain insight into the public's general priorities. Because as you may recall, the way how the department would try to engage on the budget was to give scenarios of things that, that might be funded or not. Whereas this was less, um, less closed. It was more of an open engagement. Um, arguably, more robust responses came. January 2020, um, the assembly returned, and um, it's important to realize a lot of things in new decade, new approach, um, then started to inform the review going forward. In addition to that, the March 2020 Renewable Heat Incentive Inquiry Report, which included recommendations about public finance transparency and accountability, that also started informing the review. Um, but then in March, towards the end, um, we had the lockdown and um, attentions then started to move away from the review, arguably by the department, and over to the response to the health and economic crisis. As well as, as you may recall, since January 2020, when the Assembly came back, there were various delays coming from central government, which adversely impacted on the, the budget and the financial processes here. So they, the departments were looking at the COVID as well as um, delays coming from central government, including the autumn budget delay. It was actually cancelled. Um, later in March, to date, the executive and the assembly has been <coughs> working on um, the, the, the COVID response. Um, there's been funding allocation, decision-making, reprioritizing, um, and there's been delays, again, from central government that is impacting the full implementation of the review of the 15 initial recommendations that I referred to earlier. Um, and just a quick one. I, I mean, there's a difference between delays and budgets coming through, which we all appreciate because of COVID that was coming through the pro things, but this is about process. This isn't about sort of allocation of funds. This is about process and procedures that the civil service were supposed to have instituted. So, in some respects, you know, and I know it's a question we'll ask them, but when you're doing your research, you know, it seems to be an excuse for not doing things, even though it's process. It's not driven by the available envelope of sort of funding. It's, it's a question of process. It, it, Chair, it, it definitely is a question of process, but I imagine it's something to do with finite resources as well, because if they had to div have um, exigent processes to address the exigent monies that were coming through and the limited resource, then maybe the review wasn't being driven in the mm. same way to um, institute the reform. So the interrelationship really is just finite resource and capacity to drive all things on the agenda. Right. Um, so um, in July, uh, we had the Department of Finance provide an update to this committee um, in relation to the current position on the review that 
we understand is to be implemented by 2022 to 23. It restated the aim, which is very close to the original aim, and the initial recommendations to be taken forward, which I'll move on to um, later on. And there was a, a revised timetable um, for trying to address misalignments between the three documents I told you, and they were going to do that through the, the, main, the main estimates. Um, that, again, is now 2022 to 23, not the earlier dates that have been mooted in, um, what is it, New Decade, New Approach. Um, so there is now going to be, in the uh, July 2020 document from the Department of Finance to this committee, um, the department says that it wants to engage with this committee. It appears that it's more regular engagement it wants to have. It's specifically at paragraph 17 and 18. Um, that correspondence you all have, but it can be put together in a pack, a briefing pack um, going forward. Um, and later on when I identified issues, understanding what that engagement is going to be and agreeing the terms of it will be very important if this committee is to have any um, clear understanding or any ability to maybe influence how it goes forward. Um, August to October 2020, um, there's been work ongoing. Um, we understand from a correspondence in August 2020 from um, the department out, the Department of Finance out to all the departments um, that the uh, finance department shared with this committee. And basically, what it is is looking at where they are um, for. 2021 to 24 budget planning. Now, this predates the spending review announcement by the Chancellor. Mm -hmm. And by me keep bringing up all these different things is to highlight to you the interrelationships across the, uh, the financial process. Um, and significantly, it, it included um, a, a series of templates that were going to be used to help inform restructuring the departmental baselines as well as the bidding for the budget allocations. Um, now we know, obviously, that it's a single-year budget that we're going to have. Yeah. Um, but we understand from the department that those templates still can be used um, and modified, so they'll continue to build on that, um, those, those templates. Um, and again, those templates, it would be interesting to learn more about those templates and maybe to eyeball them more to see if this committee would like to, um, is happy with all the things that are covered in the template and maybe we want, we could suggest additional things. Um, so from September, October, November, a series of things happening at central government level that are impacting here, that again are impacting um, on resource within um, the department. Um, the committee may want to know how many people are actually working on this and the, comp the membership of the working group, how much time is dedicated to the working group, um, intervals of its meeting, things of that nature, um, and also what its work program is going forward. Um, January um, 2021, going forward, as we know, Exit the um, UK exits the European Union following the period of transition. We need to know the terms because it's subject to the outcome of the um, ongoing negotiations. But there will be exit-related issues that impact um, in terms of the financial process um, and, and in terms of actual allocations. Um, 
and some of those things um, relate to additional costs of the Northern Ireland Protocol, European replacement funding, and there, there probably are others. They're just the most obvious ones. So that gives you the history, the, the overview, a yeah. very uh, quick um, a summation. A long time. It is, which is why, with the greatest respect to the committee, it's a fantastic opportunity to really do this right, you know, or at least better, so that um, we can uh, have more fit for purpose process. Um, yeah. So if we focus on the discussion paper in October 2011 that the department put together, and the July departmental update, I think there needs to be a more scientific exercise undertaken. And when the committee, when the officials come in to ask them what, what still remains untouched, what's a halfway house, what's actually being driven forward. So very crudely, what I've tried to do here is take the 15 initial recommendations in the DR, the discussion paper, which was back in 2011, and I list them as 1 to 15. And then as the 2020 departmental update, DU, they're the ones I can identify from um, the July 2020 update that the department provided to the committee. They're the significant ones that this committee, former committee, um, its predecessor had focused on and wanted to achieve. Very importantly, the Assembly controls one. That was very important to the committee. Um, so it would be interesting to understand the thinking and why they prioritize these, the department did over others, and what's the plans for the others. Mm -hmm. um, and in terms of the, the, this former committee's um, coordinated response, it's really important to remember that its impetus was simply to ensure that the assembly and the committee had greater scrutiny in the budgets and expenditure, and that it drew on um, a very clear understanding of the institutional and financial arrangements under devolution and where they came from, so that the appropriate elements within the arrangements would be amended and developed appropriately. Moving on, um, again, uh, building on the past work that's been done um, so that we can um, work towards a regularized budget process um, and incorporate and don't lose some of the things that the previous committees wanted, um, or at least for this committee and its membership to decide, do they agree with former committees and what they want to take forward? Um, so just very basically, to get the ball rolling on this, Issues for engagement are the ones that I had mentioned earlier in terms of understanding more the underlying rationale of the department to identify the issues that they're going forward with and why, um, and to do um, an explanation of what recommendations have been taken forward, what have been planned to be taken forward, and what's the plan for the rest at the present. Um, and also, there's an element of um, a need to bring forward legislation here concerning non-departmental public bodies. This relates to the second recommendation, which was in the original recommendations and seems to be what they're currently working on in the review, um, what would be the timetable for when that's coming forward. Um, and in terms of engagement, this is where I think um, maybe there should be some kind of an agreement with a standing um, um, standing meeting that they standing agenda item where 
um, you have a clear understanding as to what they mean by engagement so that your understanding of engagement and there's a meeting of the minds between the two mm -hmm. and paragraph 17 to 18 will help you um, to focus um, your question on that so knowing what they envision what intervals um, and in terms of future dry lump runs and developing templates going forward um, Arguably, the committee may want to be involved specifically in that, and also in revising existing templates um, if they feel there's gaps within them. And then very finally, coming back to one of my earlier points, is um, revisiting old raised papers um, who, uh, and seeing um, then going forward if additional papers should be compiled. So we could put the old ones in some kind of a thematic pack and then um, once we start to get back some of the answers from the department around the issues I identified, then start to identify gaps, potentially, if it'd be helpful to the committee. Elliot, thanks very much indeed. <coughs> Tim? One. Matthew? The question I was going to Anna, I'll ask whenever the officials come in. Um, thank you for this. It was really helpful. Um, Ryan, did you get any sense? So one of the things that the department is, we know we're looking at, is the fiscal council. Um, proposal which is in NDNA and then the ministers talk more broadly about a fiscal commission. I actually agree with them on that, but um, surely this would have to be aligned with that work. There's, there's interesting questions about, and there's other things in New Decade, New Approach. Um, next week, there's a paper coming to the committee on the independent um, fiscal council that's being set up um, to give you more background on what the current state of play with that. But looking for the interrelationship of that with this is something you could ask the department, along with the fiscal, fiscal commission, because hmm. sure. we don't know anything about that yet. But it was mooted by the minister a few um, weeks ago. Elaine, one of the things obviously we're probably going to have to update to is the latest sort of accountancy and governance standards, and with OECD and the process that that's supposed to be doing. But this has been going on since 2008, so we're here in 2020. We need to have a framework that we need to have a dry run through before we can formally accept it, I would understand. So despite, and this is where it comes back to the question I asked about um, the difference between process, you know, we understand there's fiscal pressures and there's a difference in this, but actually getting the procedures and the process put together. Do you have a sense that they've actually got a framework where they're ready to, to go from? Because I think Matthew's question is very germane. I mean, the issue about, you know, if we don't have a fiscal council in place, who will want to see that everything is bundled in accordance with the latest OECD methodology? How are they going to manage that at the same time as some of the, you know, this seems to be something that's been, they've taken every opportunity to stall since 2008 to get to this point. So how do we get there? Um, Chair, in terms of um, the OECD, I, I think, um, there's been principle when the this former committee had looked first looked at this. The principles didn't exist from they the OECD. Do, they do now, These don't are they? just the good budgeting principles because there's also principles yeah. in relation to the independent financial institutions. Um, so it's the the council and the commission when it comes will play some kind of a role in the process, but. Um, the review at the moment appears to be very focused on the budget mm. and not completely on the in-year financial processes. So again, that's wanting to understand more 
why they're going with these of the 15 initial recommendations in the 2011 um, departmental paper. They're not going with all of them simultaneously, but you will be aware also that there's discussions ongoing in relation to a memorandum of understanding, which was another one of the recommendations yeah. with the department. But it doesn't feature in the July update or in the, um, the August memo either. Now, some of that work has only really started to take some traction because COVID was a distraction and Chancellor delays with late Barna consequentials also was impacting on finite resource in the department. Paul. Yeah, thank you. Thanks very much for your work on this. It's very, very good in what is a very complicated system. Uh, Wiseman once said things are complicated for a reason. and uh, in, in the real world, it's probably to allow people to make money. Uh, in this world, it's maybe so that people can lose money. <laughs> but I suppose the question I have in, in that, the way I see a budget cycle is this. The first year of produce, producing a budget, and then the actual year of the budget. And then within that year of the budget, you have the end the in-year monitoring rounds. Uh, if we go to a multi-year budget, those at monitoring rounds become much more important, nearly. Um, so those two year, the two-year process, I think that we all would yearn to get to a place where we can influence the decision-making around the production of a budget much sooner, because usually it's a fait accompli. There's the budget bill, and whilst it has to go through its legislative path, there's very rarely political parties or members will actually put down amendments or change it. And of course, you've got the exaggerated passage also with regards to the committee. Uh, but then you have the in-round monitoring, where it becomes a much more of a patchwork and scattergun approach through all departments to their committees and then their committees uh, engaging uh, with all different levels of expertise and attention given. And I think it's very important through the templates and everything else that we've tried to produce in yourselves that we try and make that more uniform. And I think that we should emphasise, this committee should emphasise the importance of the financial aspects to all of the other committees. So that's all very important because ultimately if you leave this to the House or wait till it comes to the House, it's usually a fait accompli in most things. And it's usually the Finance Minister coming up and saying, here's what we've done, as opposed to here's what we plan to do. So again, I suppose my question, and I will come to them, Chair, because uh, I've had the unravel of that even in my own thinking. Would it be, is there a problem at the present time with departments bringing that information around monitoring rounds to the committees in timely fashion? And if there is a problem, can committees, any committee, actually influence the decision that a department takes around what they need in a monitoring round or what they need to give up in a monitoring round? Is, 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 is that functioning at all? At all? At all? <laughs> um, Chair, th this has been an issue going back a while, just dealing with this particular issue. Um, it's also having the committees act more proactively and not wait. It's like getting further upstream and not wait for the department to come with the information for them yes. to ask the information, which was why working with this committee, you had worked with the chairpersons to try and get all of them to, for them to send out the templates. 
But since January, there's just been a lot of confusion with COVID. And again, there's a time issue, and I'm not making that an excuse. But I must say, in the July paper and in the, uh, the memo coming from the department in August, they are definitely trying to be more proactive and plowing on because they did that in the absence of having the spending review announcement. Mm -hmm. um, and in the paper you read that it's about trying to be proactive, trying to, um, the departments this is, trying to gather up the relevant information. So it's, it's changing um, an institutional psychology in some ways, but it's not just within the departments, it's also on this side of the fence and the other statutory committees here being more proactive in their engagement earlier. Because if you think of the budget cycle, you wanna be thinking of it as the bit in the formulation, like pre-formulation, then the bit in the concurrent element where it's the implementation, yeah. and then it's the retrospective element, like the ex post looking back and the resource accounts. And it's getting more people to think in that way. And then within each of those phases, building sub-phases. Yeah. So um, if it's not forthcoming from the department, you know, the, this committee and the other committees can continue to be proactive to get further upstream. But the financial arrangements will always stymie those processes to a certain extent. Yeah. Because we are vet there's so much fiscal centrality within the jurisdiction. Yeah. that it usurps the control, because if you don't know what your spending envelope is... But that said... Sorry, sorry, apologies for Paul and Elaine, but that said, sort of one of the processes of, of actually having a proper budgetary framework, you would understand the delta. So, yeah, OK, you might know the sort of the, the net input that's going to be, but you would understand the delta between what is in the plan, where the pressures lie, and being able to look at those. And if you had set times and frames for that, that, that would set in process where the committees would know you would have to look at that. Now, regardless of whether the money is there or not, you would be able to identify where the pressures are within the department. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, that is the difference this time, because at the moment, nobody actually gets to see where the real pressures lie in the departments, or indeed where the significant underspends are in the departments, because everybody's always chasing their tail on the next thing. And I think, uh, to go back to Matthew's comment as well, this is why the role of the Fiscal Council is going to be particularly important. Because unless we have a set framework to be able to measure how far we are diverging from the norm, we're never going to be able to get hold of this, of this particular base. And I think, that, I think that is probably one of the sort of key sort of points I think I'm, I'm, I'm getting out of this. But the fact is this has been going on since 2008. So, I mean, we're well beyond the time we should be able to to this framework. Can, cool. can, I, sorry, can I ask then? Sure. So, so, is there a, so it, with regards to the, legislate, the legislation that the Finance Department is proposing, what is, what is it actually designed, in your understanding, what is it designed to do? Because surely the budget, the duty on the Minister to bring a budget is a, an accepted matter. So surely the Finance Department won't be able to produce legislation that would touch that. Um, the, the piece of legislation that they're talking about concerns a certain element. It's about non-departmental public bodies. So it's trying to bring that in to the scrutiny so that it can be seen. It's got to do with the clear line of sight work that was done by central government. So um, I, I don't know it off the top of my head, but the I can tell you... It's... Um, 
I, I think, think sir, through the, sorry, the Deputy Chair, sorry for cutting across, but I think that's probably a question we could put to yeah, the oh, department, oh, well. to the rest of it. I, mean, I think that's a. Yeah. It's basically cons it's, it's item three in their um, July document. Um, ADPBs will be consolidated within the estimates and accounting boundaries. It's got to do with the lining. Yeah, okay. So bringing them in and aligning the budgets, the estimates, and the um, resources. So it's about aligning those documents and broadening the scope of what um, the content within them. Is it your understanding then, and this is the final question, Chair, is it your understanding that there's a problem even with monitoring rounds when they are agreed at ministerial level and getting that information to the Assembly? Is there a problem in that regard and is there confusion as to what does a monitoring round actually look like for, for any department? So we have an example here of the Health Department where they get basically the uh, monitoring round position. They will get the decision, but they, can't, it, but they can't actually see decent detail to scrutinise. Is there mm -hmm. a problem there? Um, Chair, a part of um, the, the July paper and the August paper coming out of the departments are, it's about trying to, for finance department being proactive, going out to the other departments and using the templates for bidding and in terms of them, but it's also about them trying to implement some of the new decade, new approach with aligning budget lines to program for government outcomes as well. Yes. Um, equality considerations as well. So there's a whole bunch of, um, there's a list of things that they're trying to do to increase the accountability and also to have more outcomes based um, public finance decision making. Um, so there's a number of things that they're trying to do and embed in the templates and do earlier, but it's not that the departments, that they're not doing that. It's that um, sometimes the timing of this stuff, there's more of an issue around that. So not there's a delay of getting the information to members? Um, it, again, if the committee doesn't ask for it, the department may not be offering it. You know, proactively. And ultimately, the, the last time or the only time that the Assembly itself gets to even debate this is at spring supplementary estimates in February for, for money that's already they been spent. spent. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that right? That's yeah. yeah. Okay, okay thank you. Uh, thank, as usual, thank you very much indeed. Um, sorry you had to listen to our witterings a bit beforehand, but uh, thank you very much indeed. And thank no you worries. again for another thank excellent you. piece of research. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. Thanks very much. Uh, if we move on, uh, team, to the next uh, oral evidence, uh, the consultation changes transitional arrangements 2015 pensions uh, division, Department of Finance, and Stephen and Blinard. We got that. Neil's gone out. Has he just gone? Members, the session will be recorded by Hansard. Come on, on in. I'd like to inform members the following papers are relevant to the agenda item. The clerk's briefing paper on page 78. The pensions division's briefing paper on the consultation on page 81. Correspondence from the Committee for Justice regarding public service pensions and the McLeod judgment at page 86. And I would like you to have a close look at that if you can. Make sure you're familiar with that. And response from the Department to the Committee for Justice, Judicial Pensions, proposed response from McLeod. And that's on the table papers, papers at page four. 
and the departmental overview and setting out the priorities of pensions divisions tabled at page six. Bennett, could you care to make an opening statement, please? I will, Charlotte. Just a short one. So I welcome the opportunity to update the committee on the current consultation. Uh, our correspondence to the committee on the 17th of August set out the main background and rationale for the uh, proposed changes uh, detailed in the consultation. Further briefing was provided in advance of today's meeting. Uh, committee members are likely now to be familiar with the background of the issue. The transitional protection element of the 2015 reforms was deemed discriminatory on the grounds yeah. of age by the courts. Um, so we now need to remedy this position, both retrospectively from 2015 and uh, remove discrimination for the future. The EOF is consulting on the options to deliver this. The options would enable eligible members to choose to retain the benefits of um, the legacy scheme or the reform scheme. So if they're in the reform scheme, they can return to the legacy scheme. If they've been protected and in the legacy scheme, they will have access to the reform scheme. So it's whichever benefits suit them best. Um, to remove the discrimination then for the future, uh, members, all members of schemes, will accrue benefits only in the new reform scheme. So that's from April 2022. April 2022. 20... 2022. Um, that date set as being the earliest date where it's deemed they could have the legislative changes uh, yeah. made in order to implement that. Um, an update just on our consultation to date. We have had uh, 216 responses, uh, mainly from private individuals, although a few organisations um, have now responded as well. Um, the consultation launched on the 19th of August and is open to the 18th of November. Um, we have some campaign responses out of the 216. 67 of them are actually one template letter from um, people in the health scheme. Mm -hmm. um, I think, uh, I think uh, most of us as MLAs have probably seen sight of some of those uh, correspondence as well, because I think we've been, many of our MLAs offices have been contacted on these issues as well. Yeah, yeah. and we've dealt with quite a bit of correspondence yeah, coming through yeah. for our minister. Um, trade union engagement, uh, well, we're coordinating the central policy consultation with employee representatives through our CCWD, the Collective Consultation Working Group, um, which is the recognised forum for consultation on public service pensions policy. We've had meetings throughout September and October and are scheduled to meet again next week prior to the close of the consultation. Um, we have facilitated at these meetings um, relevant experts to update the unions. We had a Treasury tax expert at the last meeting, and we've had the Government Actuaries Department also attend to talk about the cost implications. So next steps then, following the end of the consultation, we will uh, obviously analyse the results, publish a response on the issues raised, and the Minister will update the Executive on firm proposals for remedy and the legislative options would then be considered also. Um, there's obviously tight deadlines to do this, um, mm -hmm. with the end of the remedy period, period being the 31st of March 2022. 
So I'm happy to take questions on anything to do with okay, I'll, the consultation. Sorry, Jim, do you want to come in? I've got a few. Yeah, we've obviously had a lot of correspondence about this issue. The people in the security forces. Now, um, you've, you've picked this date of March 2022. Is that in line with the rest of the UK? Are they all going for the same date? It is. That's in line with the UK. And what would happen if the legislation wasn't through in time? Would that be extended to 2023? It would have to be extended if we didn't have legislation. It's not, you know, it is the the date that they have um, proposed at Treasury. Um, they're obviously going to take a bill through Westminster. Um, but even that, there are questions as to whether it's achievable. But it's the current target yeah. date. But it will still leave people who took up an employment on the basis of a final salary scheme who from the 31st of March 2022 will go into the what you call the reform scheme. Now, let's be honest, the reform scheme is a lot less beneficial to most pension, pension holders than the final salary scheme. Yeah, it's, it's, a, a, career, career, it's a career average scheme. Um, it is um, the legacy scheme, final salary scheme, is more beneficial for most, but not for all. Um, and hence why there is two options being considered here, because to satisfy what the courts require, you just have to remove the transitional protection, put everybody back in the old scheme. But some people will actually have accrued better benefits in the new scheme and will be better off. So therefore, that's why there is the option of two. But then the simple solution to that is on the 31st of March 2020, is to give everybody the option of either staying in a final salary scheme or a career average scheme. In 2020? In, in the 31st of March 2020, is to allow people to have that flexibility. So those who wish to stay permanently in a final salary scheme can do so, because after the 31st of March 2020, they haven't got that option. Yeah, it's 2022. Oh, 2022, um, sorry. Yeah, well, the case for the reform of um, pensions still stands. You know, um, they were clearly set out by Lord Hutton, and it was about making them sustainable and fair to the taxpayer. So reforms were required because of increased longevity, increased costs on pensions. It was having a severe impact. Um, and those reforms weren't subject to you know, this current litigation um, where the discrimination was uh, identified. So it's only the transitional protection element of the reform that is in question, and the other reforms still stand. How much, let's assume, I mean, there's not a lot of satisfaction with this cut-off date, but let's assume it, it does become a law. How much is it going to cost, and who's going to pay for it? The cost of the actual remedy period, mm -hmm. and given the option. Uh, in the consultation document, there is a cost given of £100 million per year. Um, is so it the Northern Ireland Block Grant? No, that's a cost in the public service schemes for Northern Ireland. Um, it's £100 million per year, so £700 million altogether over the seven-year remedy period. It's a broad-brush approach because we don't know. These costs are calculated in the valuations of the schemes. The 2016 valuation has the cost cap mechanism, and the cost cap was paused at that stage. The indicative outcomes of the valuations actually looked like they were going to be a real windfall, mm -hmm. where they breached the floor of the cost cap mechanism, and it was then schemes would have to decide on whether they decrease contributions or increase scheme benefits. Now that 
the remedy is in the picture and people are getting the choice of which benefits to choose. There will be an increase in employee costs. Do, do we know what that increase is going to be? Sorry. Well, this was the broad brush, brush 100 yeah. million impact uh, across all public sector schemes. So um, this will be factored into the valuation process as an employee cost. Um, and the cost cap mechanism will be reapplied then. So um, it would be the, we don't know yet what the outcomes will be, but the outcome is likely to be not so much a windfall, but um, it could fall within the 2% uh, tolerance for the cost cap mechanism. It could fall below or it could fall above. But that depends on the outcome of the, of the consultation, uh, at which stage then we would write directions for the completion of the valuations, and those directions are also subject to consultation. So that, is that 2%, obviously a 2% increase, but is that, well, it could, uh, obviously it might go the other way, but I don't think it will. So that would be a 2% increase, but some uh, people have an 8% contribution, some people pay a 4% contribution. Is that, is that on average 2% uh, increased <coughs> contribution? No, the 2% I refer to is a tolerance on the cost cap. There is a percentage rate set with an actuarial calculation as to what the cost cap of a scheme is. Mm -hmm. And in the valuation, if the cost cap is breached um, more than 2% lower or above, then there has to be some sort of um, adjustment. adjustment made. And that adjustment can be made um, either by increasing contributions benefit, or reducing the benefits. The benefits um, or effect, you know, impacting the contribution. So that's a two or a combination of both. Okay, and but we're not suggesting that there will be a two percent increase in employee contributions because of this, not at all. Okay, sorry. Just one small at the end of the day, if there's an extra cost, who bears that? Is it coming directly from Westminster, or do we, do our departments have to bear the extra costs here? It's not the departments as such. It's identified as an employee cost in the valuations. The employer costs for the 2016 valuations were set uh, from 2019 to 2023 uh, and won't change before 2023. Lost me here. Because um, it's a balance <coughs> of employee costs and employer costs. Yes. So if there's additional employer costs... Who pays it? Who is that coming from? Is that coming through directly as a Barnett consequential from Westminster, so we get the extra money? Are we going to be expected to dip into our department's budgets to pay it? We don't know if there is an employer cost because that rate is already set until 2023. Um, the employer cost then will be set at the earliest 2023 after the 2020 valuations, and there are other things that can impact that. So I couldn't say that there would be a McLeod impact on that. What will impact is um, the scape discount rate. Um, there's a scheduled review of the methodology for scape discount. There's also a review of the rate of scape discount. And we also had a decrease in the scape discount rate at the last valuations, which put employer rates up. And for part of that, we got funding from Treasury, and for part of it, it had to be absorbed. But saying all that, then, why have you not included the option of allowing those who entered in good faith into a final salary scheme? I'm thinking, for instance, as a police constable, 
who entered in good faith and expected to be in a final salary scheme to the end of his career and would retire at 60 on, on a, a final salary scheme. What was wrong with the option of including that uh, as a potential um, scenario where, in other words, you either can have the 2022 option or, if you want to, you can go on to the end of your career? Because the case for the reform of public ser service pensions still stands. It was agreed here uh, in the Assembly in 2014 in the Public Service Pensions Act 2014. Um, and, you know, removing the transitional protection element of those reforms is all that has to be addressed at this stage. Are we bound by whatever Westminster decides to do on this? Because can, we, can we decide to be more flexible and more generous, or are we stuck with whatever England, Scotland, Wales do? Uh, well, public service pensions are devolved here to the Department of Finance with the Public Service Pensions Act. When we brought through that reform, there was um, a very strong message from Treasury, if you do something differently or you do not implement those reforms, there will be a financial penalty to the NI block. So, so that was the extent of Her Majesty, that was the extent of Her Majesty's Treasury taking into account our views when designing the consultation. So in other words, you're saying there's no choice? Because I mean, the, the, our departments couldn't afford that. No. No, you wouldn't want to be impacting the NI block um, by it. Okay. Uh, there, there are good reasons why we um, apply the same things or similar skim, schemes in GB. Um, it's the same legislation. There are only tweaks made for Northern Ireland. And so we can also sort of work on the principle that the Department of Treasury will uh, listen respectfully to what our say, we say and then go ahead with it anyhow. Yeah, well, we're doing our own consultation to take on board the views of Northern Ireland stakeholders. Paul. Yeah. Uh, again, thank you for your presentation. Uh, like Jim, you've lost me, but that's not your fault. You're clearly, <laughs> you're clearly on top of your game and the detail, and I'm not, so please excuse my ignorance. But can I, can I be provocative for one minute in my questioning in regards to trying to tease something out of detail? Are we really saying then that if we're asking the employees to, to share some of the costs around the evaluations. Are we really saying that we've discriminated against you? We're going to stop discriminating against you, but it's going to cost you. Is that really what we're saying? Well, it's a get what you pay for. You know, if you're given the choice to have higher benefits, then it's a higher employee cost in the calculation. So, so, so the employee has a choice whether they go for the repaired scheme or a more lucrative scheme, because that's different. Yeah, more lucrative is down to um, a personal choice. Yes. There are scheme benefits that would be more attractive to one person and maybe not to another, you know, depending on whether they have dependents, um, whether they want to have an automatic lump sum at retirement yes. or you know, to commute some pension into a lump sum. Um, they're, they're just two very different schemes. When the career average schemes were introduced, um, they were seen to benefit very much lower paid people, um, people with a more static type of career path, um, whereas final salary schemes um, were very generous to people who sort of flew up through the ranks and, you know. So, so it's fair to say, so no one will come out of this knowing that the 
discrimination has now been shown and, and uh, declared upon. And, and the re new repaired scheme, even with the choices, the new repaired scheme will completely do away with the discrimination that people have faced. Yeah, the repaired scheme that you refer to would be the new career average reform schemes introduced from 2015. And the discrimination will be removed because everybody will be in them. You know, you're not given a choice but, you know, related to age that somebody could stay in the legacy scheme because they are older. You know, that's the whole point of this. Okay, thank you, Jim. Okay, thanks, Jim. Yeah, so... McLeod was based on the fact that there was age discrimination. And the answer to that was to give people the option of reverting to the final salary scheme, but only till 2022. Does that not mean that the age discrimination resumes in 2022? Not when everybody is treated the same and everybody is in the same scheme. Everybody was in it in the sense that everyone was moved onto the onto the career average. But not everybody did move on to the career average because there was an age-related provision there where people who were age 50 um, or within 10 years of uh, their normal pension age on the 31st of March 2012 had the option or just stayed in their legacy scheme. Um, and then there was also some tapered protection, which was age-related as well, um, so that people maybe got staying longer in the legacy scheme. Um, but if you didn't fall into that age-related criteria on the 31st of March 2012, then you automatically moved under the new scheme. But, but to take, Jim, I was referred to the policeman, take the policeman who joined, whatever point he joined, uh, when it was a final salary scheme, um, recent recruits, for example, will readily probably always have been on the career average scheme. But once it reverts to everyone on career average, surely the older person who joined sooner is being prejudiced because of his age? All the... Uh Benefits that they had accrued in the final salary scheme are protected. Yes, but he can't go on accruing. That was the expectation. No, there was, there the would be a combined, if they fell into that age group, <coughs> there would be a combined thing where they would have the final salary scheme. Um, it's also linked to their final salary. So if you had somebody who had final salary of 20, 30 years up to 2015 and then didn't retire until... Uh, 2025, well, it would be their final salary at 2025 that their 20 or 30 years would be based on that service for their final salary scheme. So it's not that it shuts down and it's what your salary is and then you're moved over, it's actually your final salary when you retire that impacts. For that portion? For, you, yeah, for what scheme benefits you have, uh, what service you have accrued. For your final salary scheme. And the fact that someone, when they joined a particular service, had a legitimate expectation that the pension scheme on offer would continue to be the pension scheme, 
That's just tough, is it? Yeah. The reforms were deemed necessary and they were agreed both in Westminster and in the Northern Ireland Assembly. So on that point, I think the normal approach for pension reform would be that these changes would be introduced just from a future date and would affect new entrants from a future date. But as Blanard has highlighted, one of the main recommendations of the Hutton Commission was that new all members move over to the career average schemes. However, um, during the negotiations on the design of the new scheme, it was designed that they would introduce quite an obvious age discrimination. Um, to enable those people who were within 10 years of their retirement age to remain in the schemes. Um, that was on the basis that the, the government's position was that was a legitimate aim to protect those people closest to retirement and there was a proportionate means of doing so. Now, I think that's the point about the discrimination is that's, that the courts have found that the, the government at the time has, has not now demonstrated that that was a legitimate aim and has not demonstrated it was a proportionate means of uh, protecting those people from the effects of the reforms. I mean, the other question I might be is, I might be so bold, of course, where the age profile within the Northern Ireland Civil Service is of a degree that moving people onto the sort of the new scheme as they join, there's not very many people joining and there's been a considerable gap. So obviously the expense by remaining in the original scheme is significant. So there is an imperative to get people moving into the new scheme. And that's just one of the schemes, obviously, because we're looking in this consultation across all the own. But you can see, that it's, it's, you know, you know, sort of the police service of Northern Ireland will have younger people coming through the system, but other people have been, you know, they haven't been recruiting for a considerable period of time. Okay, sorry, thanks very much. Uh, I apologise, Melissa. Tell me exactly how to say your name correctly. Melissa. Melissa. So, sorry, I'm also interested because I. We, don't, we, don't, well, we generally do not want to give offence, yeah, so can, how, how do we say it correctly? Malisa. 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 Yeah. Okay. I apologise profusely for getting your name wrong. Malisa. Thank you for the chat. You're very welcome here this evening. Thank you for your statement as well. It helped to clarify things for me as well. Uh, but uh, as to be commended, just that at least people do have that choice now uh, uh, between the two schemes that uh, have existed sort of in parallel in a sense, right? But what is unfortunate as well too is the very fact that uh, the employees uh, will have to carry the cost of uh, the remedy, uh, i.e. them and the employer. Yeah. And is there any um, um, suggestion uh, in terms of um, what proportion of that cost would be borne by employees. Yeah, so you're really asking, do we know will there be a change in their contribution rate? Or okay. uh, That would all be the outworkings of a scheme valuation, and there could be no change, would be the, the likely outcome. But we don't know until we have the result of this consultation. Um, we decide whether to go with immediate choice or deferred choice underpin, um, then right directions that will enable the valuations for 2016 to be completed and the cost cap uh, calculation redone. Um, we'll know then on the impact on the results of the valuations. The previous, before McLeod costs were taken into account, the previous valuations did indicate that there would be a breach to the floor. And this was the first valuation round where we actually had this cost cap mechanism in place. So 
April, it was not expected that any scheme would fall more than 2% above or below this uh, stated figure. It's different for each scheme. Um, so taking into account the McLeod costs, they are more likely then to um, not have such a significant floor breach. But I can't really say whether there would be breaching the ceiling, breaching the floor, or falling within the 2% uh, tolerance of each side of the cost cap. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed. Uh, Matthew. Thank you, uh, Chair, and thank you, Blonde and Stephen, for coming to, to um, give us evidence. Um, just for the purposes of getting all the basics right, um, in terms of the scheme, what are you consulting on? Is it the design, or is it not the principle? You said that the, 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 the principle is happening, as it were, but it, it's the... The consultation document? Yes. It's more the timing. It's, it's not what's going to happen, it's when it's going to happen. Um, the, you know, the policy is set that there will be a choice given. That's above and beyond what is required. Mm -hmm. And as I explained, it's because some people were actually better off in the new schemes. Um, so immediate choice or deferred choice underpin is more or less just the timing of when this will actually be done. And it would have a big impact on schemes. Yeah. Uh, and we also have to then look at the, the legal risk. You know, it, it's extremely complex, you'll have seen from yeah. the um, consultation document. You know, but there are some pros and cons. There's a huge administrative burden to um, have to implement it quickly within a few years. And at that stage, if somebody wasn't retiring for another 20 or 30 years, other things can impact in the meantime. You know, um, and they could get to retirement age and say, well, actually, if I had known that, I wouldn't have made that decision at that time. Yeah, I should have. So, yeah. Okay. Um, so. I should declare, I guess, a, a tangential interest in the sense that I'm a civil service pension holder, albeit not in Northern Ireland and the UK. Um, is it the case, in terms of timing, because it's not the, the, the timing, you're not retrospectively changing the 31st of March 2012 timing, you're changing when this new choice comes in. And am I under, the, just to understand, the choice is basically you can either um, uh, just remain in the career average scheme uh, as it's, that the, the, the is. As it will, as it has the, the, the re-engineered career average scheme, or you can effectively remain in the career average scheme, but you pay a bit more in order to get, roughly speaking, closer to the um, benefits that you would have got under the um, final salary scheme. Is that you wouldn't be saying you'd be paying more? Um, you can choose to stay in your reform scheme, which would be career average, and yeah. this is for the remedy period. So this starts from the first of April, twenty fifteen up to the 31st of March 2022. Um, so for the remedy period, you can choose to be in the career average scheme <coughs> if you were in it. So these are the people, these are remedy people, these are people who are within 10 years? Everybody falls within the remedy that yeah. falls in scope as in they were in post on the 31st of April 2012. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and still in post on the 1st of April 2015. So, they don't have sorry, they, they, to, to be eligible for it. They don't have to be. They don't have to have been the people who were within ten years of retirement in 2012. No. 
No, Everybody and that's to remove the discrimination. Period would be within the period where discrimination is deemed to have occurred. Yeah. So the consultation seeks views on when a choice should be taken about that chunk of service, how it should be treated, and either the legacy scheme or the new scheme. Mm -hmm. And additionally, the consultation seeks views on what arrangements should be in place after 1st of April 2022, which may, is an opportunity, I think, to address some of the points that other committee members have raised here in mm -hmm. terms of the career average uh, scheme model. Is that appropriate going forward? And, okay. and just on the um, on the um, uh, 100 million, just this is pay. This isn't public service. The cost of public service pensions are paid as DL from the budget of the relevant departments. So if it's if it's PSNI pensions, it comes out of the justice budget. If it's civil service pensions, it comes out of finance and it is accounted as. Dale, is that right? I understand this. The employer contributions the employer contribution. out of Dale and pensions and payment are paid out of Amy. And the, um, right, okay. You know, there's a, a lot of projections done on that. Okay. Thanks very much. Pat? Thanks very much, Chair. Um, I suppose I just want to uh, thank you. Thanks for your evidence, sir. The trade unions, I see that they have been consulted. Uh, um, so, the full equality impact assessment was necessary for the changes for the scheme. Has that been carried out? Uh, there's an equality screening exercise being carried out, and as part of the consultation, we've actually asked for a comment on the equality impacts and any suggestions. And are all the trade unions, they're all represented on that, so it's all. It's all covered in on that, that on that scoping exercise. Um, and the, uh, the all the trade unions included in our CCWD, our collective oh, consultation working group. It's actually the Northern Ireland Committee of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions that facilitate yeah. the trade union side, and they would have uh, affiliate members, and they have uh, as observer status sometimes some non-unionised people in, like the Police Federation, right. have attended meetings. So. The trade unions, they, they were concerned about the attributable costs, but really what I'm trying to say is, I don't know, Chair, is it possible for us to get the submissions from the trade unions uh, to, the ch to the changes and to kind of give us a clearer view on the options of the proposals? Would that be fair for this committee to ask for that, and is it possible to get sight of it? Would you be content to forward those to us? Uh, if you could just forward me the request in writing, and we'll yeah, we'll do it. Okay. Are we, committee, are we content? No, just uh, something raised by Jim and Paul. Not only are we listening to this, but there's quite a few people out there very, very interested in what you're saying. Uh, now, just uh, employee Smith was just over 55 at the day of the changes in 2015. Are just under side. He loses out on the final salary scheme. You're giving him seven years extra in the final salary scheme. Is that effectively what you're doing? I think if they were 55 when the scheme came in, they would have actually been protected. Oh, under 55. Under 50. There's, there's different criteria for 
every scheme, you know, different, even different normal pension ages. You should be a politician. Minimum pension ages. You know, no, I, don't. I try to look don't. at this. No, no. <laughs> I try to look at this as a whole, but every scheme has different rates, different scheme design, different benefits, and where the police are concerned, different normal pension age and the new schemes as to what other okay. public service but schemes Let's have. not take a policeman, but take a mythical public service employee who was told that because he was just slightly under 55 in 2015, he came out of the final salary scheme and moved into a career average scheme. Mm. The effect of what you're doing is to give him seven years more in the final salary scheme until 31st of March 2022. Is that correct? There is an example of that, yes. Your quoting of age 55 wouldn't be relevant, yes. But somebody who had to move over because they weren't protected okay. through the specific age criteria, which is um, being in post with, on the 31st of March 2012 within 10 years of your normal pension age, as I say, would vary from scheme to scheme. Yes, somebody who got moved on to the new scheme would then get an additional seven years should they choose and the options that they would like to have the legacy scheme. Okay. Now, in response to Jim, you then said for the three years from 2020, 31st of March 2022 till he retires, or she, of course, retires if in 2025. If, if they were retiring at 2025, so, yeah. At 65. Then they go on to the career average scheme for three years, but you protect all of the benefits for the previous 20 or 30 years, mm -hmm. right, okay? Yeah. Is there anything that they can do to opt in at their expense to maintain the same benefits as if they'd stayed in the final right. salary scheme? It's two completely different scheme designs. There's so many different elements to it. Right. Well, what would have been wrong with having an option in your paper that allowed somebody at their expense to continue to accrue the benefits to their age 65 for the last three years? Because the point of this is only to remove the transitional protection element of the public service pension reforms, and <coughs> the reform of public service pension still stands. Um, and the consultation actually asks the question on future, you know, is it appropriate that we do this from 2022? Yeah, and lots of people say no, it's not, that, that they want to retain their final salary scheme right up to the day of retirement. Mm. And that's a reasonable expectation. That's what they signed up to. And that's, that's what we've been lobbied about. Okay, okay thanks, Erin. Um, just a couple of things to finish up with. I mean, uh, I think one of the figures we talked about was roughly about 700 million. Was, was sort of, seven yeah, years, was yeah. Over the sort of seven years. But there's, I think from your own documentation, you said there's about 1,300 legal cases in the system. For Northern Ireland, yeah. Yeah, so that's 1,300 legal cases which will have a potential cost. So that's on top of the 700 million, I would presume. The 700 million is um, a factor in the valuation. The legal cases wouldn't be. Yeah, but again, that is, you know, I'm just thinking about the sort of the overall the cost is likely to be. And oh, I hate to use this word, but we probably need a new IT system, won't we? Couldn't possibly comment. Um, <laughs> and we're not very good at IT uh, systems, are we? There will be we? new um, administrative processes, obviously, um, required uh, and system requirements. Uh, so whether it's new contracts or existing contracts, whether they're tweaking something they already have or need a whole complete new system, you know, that's all implementation issues. And obviously there's a, and a cost to that as well. Okay. Well, that was that was fun. Oh, it was. <laughs> <laughs>
But uh, thank you very much indeed, and thank okay. both of you very much indeed for coming in. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, now. <coughs> okay, team, I propose that uh, we take a quick five-minute break, and then we'll start the oral evidence and review of financial process the Department of Finance, if you are content. I think the way Matthew's jumping up and down there, that's the thing. Uh, if we suspend the uh, session for five minutes, and if we're back in here, please, for uh, ten to, if we could. Thank you. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, programme signed. 
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. Okay, team, moving on to the next section, Review of Financial Process Department of Finance. And can we invite Jeff and Pamela to come in? Team, I just remind you that this session has been recorded by Hansard. The following party papers are relevant to the agenda process. Clark's briefing paper on the financial process is page 34. Departmental briefing paper is page 38. Letter from uh, Robin to the Committee for Health regarding October monitoring updates, page 45. And correspondence from the Department of Health to Committee for Health regarding background detail on the cost estimate for safe staffing is on page 60. Welcome. Seems like old friends. You are. Anyhow, Jeff, over to you. Certainly. Um, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about the review of financial process. Um, as you will be aware, for many years the Assembly members have expressed frustration with trying to understand the differing sets of information around budgets, estimates and accounts. The previous executive agreed that the main recommendations of the original review of financial process to align budget and estimates uh, and accounts should be taken forward. 
Following the decision by the previous executive, the Public Spending Directorate has set up a project team to take forward that work, um, alongside other departments to implement the review. There has been engagement with all departments on the process. Engagement with the Northern Ireland Audit Office has also been in place. The original plan was for the 2021 main estimates to be presented on the new basis. Due to the lack of a functioning assembly, it was not possible to progress the legislation necessary to enable implementation for the 2021 year, and as a result, the implementation date had been put back to 21-22. Since the restoration of the executive, plans had been progressing to meet this new timetable. Mm -hmm. However, the current situation with COVID has made this increasing, increasingly difficult. The added challenges of providing the critical services necessary for our citizens in this environment have rightly taken priority. In that context, the executive has agreed to put back the implementation for another year and is now planned for 2022-23. Um, as I said, this delay has been due to the impact of COVID-19, the need to undertake a second vote on account and a delayed main estimate this year has meant there is no capacity in departmental finance branches to undertake the preparatory work necessary for implementation in 21-22. Additional work undertaken by um, our own department on the response to COVID-19 has meant that our resources have also been diverted away from the review. The additional year's delay to implementation means that dry run processes for 1920 can be dropped to allow focus to remain on key service delivery this financial year. The overall aim of the executive's review is to uh, create a financial framework that is effective, efficient and transparent and enhances scrutiny by and accountability to the Assembly. The first phase of the review will deliver on the key recommendations. Those key recommendations are um, Assembly controls will change to align budgets, estimates and accounting boundaries. The Assembly will vote the budget controls in the Estimates, Supply and Appropriation Act. Each department's resource Dell, capital Dell, resource Amy, capital Amy, and non-budget, if necessary, will be presented in the estimates document in a format that is easily reconcilable to the budget document. Um, understand that uh, you'll appreciate that's not quite the case at this moment in time. To approve that trans so that's what's known officially in the civil service as an understatement. Possibly so. <laughs> Uh, to provide the transparency, all expenditure and income within budgets, which previously was not covered by the estimates, will be brought within the coverage of the estimates. <coughs> NDBBs, non-departmental public bodies, will be consolidated within the estimates and accounting boundaries, thereby providing alignment with the budget boundary. This proposal will increase transparency and address the criticism and frustration of Assembly members and others when trying to understand the different sets of financial information. The Assembly will vote net controls in the Estimate and Budget Act. This reflects the presentation in the budget document. The level of income will be shown in the estimate under each budget boundary and appropriate safeguards put in place to ensure that the control over the use of income by departments is maintained, but it will not be a voted control. The structure of the estimates will be redesigned to provide a more user-friendly document with a suitable level of transparency agreed with each department. As far as possible, all misalignments between budgets, estimates and accounts would be removed. While good progress has been made to date by all departments, there is still a lot to be done for the review to be implemented. Um, the key activities and associated deadlines as we move forward towards implementation were provided to the committee in the briefing paper. In terms of further assembly and executive engagement, there is a technical piece of legislation required to enable the consolidation of NDPBs into departmental estimates and, by extension, the accounts. Work is progressing with the Office of Leg for Legislative Council to finalise the draft bill, and that will be brought forward in the assembly. In terms of executive engagement, a paper will be brought to the executive to agree the future departmental structure 
alongside and as part of the budget process to, uh, the process to set the budget for 21-22. A paper will also be brought to the executive to agree the future estimate structure. In terms of committee engagement, the previous committee for finance and personnel played a proactive role, liaising with other statutory committees, and coordinated a detailed response on behalf of the assembly at the time of the initial review. We therefore plan to engage with the finance committee in a number of key areas. The most relevant, um, I think those are detailed in your briefing paper, the most relevant um, is to update the committee after each dry run in the process, mm -hmm. allowing them to feedback and understand the, the process within the dry run and the lessons to be learned in there. Um, as well as that, the, obviously the committee have a key role in um, looking at and scrutinising the legislation as we pass that through the Assembly. Um, that summarises what we're doing in phase one uh, of the review. I'll just talk a little bit about phase two. The original review made some other recommendations that, while not being taken forward in this current programme of work, are recognised as very important. The recommendations that will be taken forward in a second phase are um, addressing some uh, final misalignments, streamlining the end stage of the budget process by combining um, with the main estimates. Um, looking at the standing orders to facilitate truncated passage of estimates and related supply and appropriation orders through the Assembly, and the development of the executive budget in the context of um, executive priorities and outcomes in the programme for government. I'd like to turn to Pamela to set out some detail on the uh, project's communication, the, the misalignment work that we're doing, the dry run process itself, and the legislation. Yeah, thanks, Pamela. Okay. Thank um, so, when we set up the project, we recognised that good communication with all the departments would be key to successful implementation. And while the project was not starting from a zero-based position, um, a lot of work had been done when the review was first established many years ago. We recognised that in those intervening years, things may have changed for departments. Um, initial meetings took place with all departments to ensure that the project team had a complete list of all current non-departmental public bodies and the issues that each department recognised within their own reporting structures. While some of those issues were common to all departments, some were specific to a single department. We had to make sure and capture everything. Guidance notes um, have been developed giving details of solutions to misalignments or issues as each was resolved and they were shared with departments and that was all departments, not just those who had raised the issue. Those were also published on the Department of Finance intranet site, so they were visible to all at any point. We sought and received quarterly progress updates from all departments, and those particular questions we asked as we went through the, the whole process that we've embarked upon, the questions changed as the progress was shown. Quarterly newsletters have been, um, up until March this year, issued to all departments giving progress across the budget estimate and accounting strands of the project. These also included the departmental progress reports, um, and we also had input from Account NI as the work that they were undertaking on recording and reporting solutions to help with the production of consolidated accounts. Um, a working group has been set up by departments, which again up until March did meet quarterly. This was attended by the project team Account NI, the Northern Ireland Audit Office and Internal Audit, and it has proved a very useful forum for information sharing between departments and on the common issues that they are each experiencing. The project team has also held workshops where it was felt that a common issue shared by more than one department would benefit from more detailed group discussion. 
Um, and I'll, I'll move on to talk a little bit about the misalignments themselves um, that we've worked through. Um, all misalignments listed as part of the initial data capture with departments are being worked through. And in doing that, we're using Treasury guidance that's in place for budgets, the existing guidance for accounts, and we're using the estimates guidance in place in England. The, the alignment project has been in existence there for many years, and we can use their guidance and see what has worked and if it's appropriate to the same to apply the same solution here. Um, we've consulted with departments on the practical application of any solution as we develop it, and we've worked very closely with the Northern Ireland Audit Office on any proposed solution. The main misalignment that departments have been working towards resolving is that of non-departmental public bodies, and as Jeff's mentioned, the spend of those bodies has always been in budgets, but not in estimates and accounts. Um, instead, the estimates and accounts recorded the departmental transaction with those bodies. Um, the key focus in departments have been putting in place the processes with their non-departmental public bodies to enable that to happen, and it's how they capture the information from them at the key stages in, in the process. Other misalignments that we've looked at have included those where the, there is already separate legislation providing the authority to incur expenditure, and that that authority is not required through the estimate process. We recognise that that particular piece of spend will still need to appear within the coverage of the estimate to provide the rate across from the budget document and the transparency, but it will need to be non-voted in nature. Um, notional costs, um, while they currently appear in estimates accounts, do not currently appear in budgets. It's another misalignment we're trying to resolve. And Try and turn again. Notional costs yeah. are currently in the estimates and in accounts, but they're outside of the budget boundary. So we need to look and see how we resolve that misalignment. Okay. Um, there are other issues, not so much a misalignment, but issues where a non-departmental public body has a different financial year end to those of the departments. Um, so for example, further education colleges, they work on an academic year as opposed to a financial year. So there, there are issues of timing where that, that alignment has to be made clear for accounts, and we're working through those solutions as well. Don't they do their accounts on? On academic years. Oh. Their financial year close is a different uh, time period than departmental ones. Um, so while we've been working through them, not all misalignments have been resolved, and the project team is continuing to work through those that remain. Um, the dry run process, um, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, we have completed the first dry run um, at quite an early stage in the overall timeline of the review, and we wanted to get early feedback from the processes that were being put in place. So there's a dry run 2018-19 spring supplementary estimate, and that was completed by departments in autumn 2019. Uh, we held a workshop with all departments in December 2019, and while the individual departments had worked through the dry run process and the output that they had uh, come through with their own supply team, the workshop with all departments present was very useful for sharing experiences and talking through common questions. Did you get some lessons identified out of that? Absolutely, we rather did. Rather than learned? <laughs> Both. <laughs> <laughs> you, would it be possible to share those with the committee? The lessons identified that? Because obviously if you've already done a dry run, that would give us an opportunity for us to read in and just be aware of some of the some of the outstanding areas. Absolutely. Are we content? Content. Yeah. Yes, I think I think I know. So I like to see the templates. 
Yeah. Um, well, the estimates manual that was issued for that dry run and the template itself are currently being revised because there's some some of the feedback that we got through that process um, identified some uh, points where we needed to clarify more carefully what was required and um, to expand upon some of the guidance that we provided. And that works currently on underway so that we can provide revised templates and guidance to the departments for the next dry run. So uh, with the... We're happy to share another point in time. Yeah, so, no, yeah. I, I, so think, I, think we, I think we would like to position. see this. Yeah. So yeah, we can provide another point in time. Yeah. And uh, if you would be so kind as to lend one of your experts to come and explain it through to us for some of the sort of uh, more nuanced sort of government speak within it, but that would be, uh, we would very much appreciate that. So that we're working towards revising that so that we can issue it to departments next month to facilitate the completion of the 2020-21 dry run for spring supplementary estimates. Oh, Timelines. So just could you give me some more detailed dates on that one? Absolutely. Um, we're hope, we're going to issue the guidance next month for the 2020-2021 dry run spring supplementary estimate to be End completed. Of December. Hopefully before the end. Um, uh, the, uh, the dry run itself is to be completed by the beginning of April 2021. The, the next step in the process, obviously, if there are any further amendments or comments to be taken on board to that template and manual, that will be done in advance of reissuing it to departments for the 2021-22 dry run of main estimates, which we're working towards having completed by the 1st of September 2021. And then there will be a further spring supplementary estimate dry run process that will occur for the 2021-22 financial year. Alongside the dry run estimates, there has been a dry run accounts process for 2018-19. And that has been completed by departments and submitted to the Northern Ireland Audit Office. The Northern Ireland Audit Office has completed a high-level review of the dry run accounts and has provided feedback to departments. And that feedback was largely positive. Um, the intent of that first dry run process um, did highlight where further work was needed, and that's what the aim of it always was. And the project team in the Northern Ireland Office <coughs> Audit Office are working to resolve any outstanding issues, and that work will continue throughout. Um, the accounts dry run processes um, for the 2020-21 year-end accounts, that should be completed in November 2021. Mm -hmm. And a further and third dry run set of accounts would be completed the following year, November 2022. Um, the dry run process is planned for both estimates and accounts alongside what we've learned from the initial early 2018-19 dry run process will provide the reassurance that we need um, going forward to full implementation in 2022-23. Um, and just a little bit of information on the legislation itself that we need to take through. Mm -hmm. um, the, in the very early stages, the project team started discussions with the Departmental Solicitor's Office um, to take their view on the changes to legislation that would be necessary to implement the recommendations that the executive had agreed. Once it was established that the changes necessary to Northern Ireland legislation were very much in line with those taken forward in 2010 in England, the project team began the engagement with the Office of the Legislative Council, and we have worked with a drafter, and a draft clause is uh, very nearly finalised. It's a very small clause, it's only got four sections, 
And what that small piece of legislation will do is it will direct that an estimate prepared for any department will include any body that is designated as related to that department. Um, a designation order will be created each year and reviewed ahead of the estimate process. As a body should only be designated to one estimate and one department, um, we need to uh, consult, as we currently do with Treasury, on their estimates to make sure that any, if a body receives a payment from more than one consolidated fund, that agreement is reached on which designation order that body should be noted within. Um, once an estimate is prepared, including the designated bodies, the preparation of accounts follow because the accounts follow the estimates. Mm -hmm. um, so that's about such a small piece of legislation. There's limited changes it needs to make. Um, so for the next steps for the project team, um, we're going to continue working through the remaining issues and misalignments and um, ensuring that the revised estimates, manual and templates are issued um, ahead of the 2020-21 dry run spring supplementary estimate and making sure that's as comprehensive as possible at this stage <coughs> and addresses as many of the issues that we've identified as it can. Okay, thanks very much. Just a couple of questions. And I think, and Matthew, I'm, I apologise if I'm going to sort of cut across what you were probably going to ask. But obviously one of the things we wanted to see was with the Fiscal Council being in place. And obviously one part of the process is with the Fiscal Council supervising the whole methodology and looking at sort of the processes and procedures, particularly the budgetary process, and to be able to do that in a timely manner. And not only doing that in a timely manner, that both the departments and the Assembly can feed in and the various committees have particular roles and places to do with that as well. I also note that in a recent report, I think it was from the Northern Ireland Audit Office on, on projects and project management, there was issues about the fact that permanent secretaries didn't have full responsibility for their particular capital budgets in those in those areas. And I also note that the Minister is intent on forming a project procurement board and a project procurement board that may not have, which all the departments will feed into, but may not have permanent secretaries as part of that procurement board. That raises a substantial issue of, you know, the, the role of the permanent secretary is to be the accounting officer for the department. And what I'm not seeing here, how we manage that up together, because one of the things we need to do is not only do we have to have the budget process, but we need to have accountability and responsibility that flows through the process. <coughs> what we seem to be doing here is achieving a degree of process. But I don't see how we're getting the sort of the spectrum that we need to make sure that we actually have a proper, accountable, responsible, and timely budgeting and auditing process. And I think just, and I don't know, I'd have to have a look, close look at the legislation and the change to doing that. That's more with the process rather than sort of the, the top-down approach that we need to see change. Yeah, certainly, this this piece um, of work is designed uh, to do a very narrow. Um, uh, clarification. Um, so it's designed to help translate the legislation that underpins the budget mm -hmm. um, and allow an easy read across between the two so that um, when you're looking at uh, a budget in the Assembly Chamber, it's not radically different from the estimate that you that you pick up um, three or four months later when you're, when you're doing the, the underpinning legislation. Um, so it's designed to do that. It, it, the, the, the bit that you're maybe um, the accountability bit comes a little bit maybe before that in terms of how uh, an accounting officer manages their budget. Mm -hmm. so th this isn't 
and won't ever probably be designed to to address that element. That, that's maybe something a different piece of work that needs to be done, um, or, or to be addressed by the committee. But this this process is very much looking at here is the budget that has been decided, and how do we then make the 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 assembly scrutiny of the underpinning legislation as clear as possible and as transparent as possible, so that um, the man on the street can pick it up and, and do a bit of a comparison between the two, and it's not limited to those of us who understand the, the dark art of public expenditure. I think the point, um, I think maybe the point the committee is interested in is how we look at the overall process. It's not just this bit of it, sure. how the other bits marry in together. And I think one of the issues that we, and I think the and NDPs, non-public, whatever happens to be, like you've got the issue, if you've got your five health trusts, I mean, the Department of Health, it has its budget, it desegregates its budget down to its sub-budget holders, and then that's it, it's gone. It doesn't really have any oversight or control over it for that particular period of time. So what that means, it becomes particularly difficult for, let's say, for the Health Committee and indeed the Department of Health to look at that because there is no accountability and responsibility within that process because we haven't tied in the, uh, and I don't know if it's a legislative framework, we haven't properly tied in the ability for the committee to do that degree of scrutiny and understanding because they don't understand where the pressure points are, they don't understand where all the other issues are because that isn't formally let out in any form of process. Now, from what I hear, this is tinkering with a bit of it. But it's not looking at the overall piece of it, and I might be wrong, but I strongly suspect, you know, this is why we really need to get the fiscal council in place, and we need to sort of look at how we we do we join the bits together. Because at the moment, I think you're doing particularly good work, but you've been doing particularly good work from 2008, so you haven't quite managed to get there yet, which is probably very frustrating for you. But for the other issue, we need to be able to do from here, from an assembly point of view, is we need to be part of that accountability and responsibility process and oversight much earlier on, and there needs to be a mechanism that that in some way is formalised, but that's sort of my perspective. Sorry, uh, Paul. Yes, thank you. Very, very interesting. Um, so if we ever get to a multi-year budget cycle, monitoring rounds are going to be very important, more important now than they are present, I would assume. Uh, so who makes the decision on a monitoring round? The executive make decisions on monitoring rounds. Should it not be the assembly? The, the, the executive make decisions on monitoring rounds, and then ultimately that, that that revised position is brought to the assembly through the spring supplementary estimates, and the assembly vote on the revised position as accumulation of the three monitoring rounds, or however many in a financial year. Which is in <coughs> late winter when the money has been. That's correct, yes. Spent. So, whilst you're striving to get more transparency, what we're not striving to have is more democratic accountability in our budget process. So, would you. So, imagine a scenario whereby the Finance Minister has to bring monitoring round, all three, to the floor of the Assembly to get approval. How would that affect your. Processes. Um, I, I guess there would have to be additional time built into the processes to um, to allow that to happen uh, uh, and for the assembly to debate and to vote on it. Um, if 
would it not be more useful to do that rather than the assembly voting on what is a fait accompli with regards to spring supplement? Yes. I think uh, there would be no getting around the the um, the need for the assembly to vote at that last period of the of the financial year, simply because there'd be a number of technical changes and internal adjustments that may ultimately affect the um, the overall position. So um, the assembly would still have to to vote at that sort of spring supplementary estimate stage. What duty is placed on a department, any department, to bring forward their monitoring round positions to the scrutiny, their relevant scrutiny committees before submission to the finance minister? That, that's a matter for individual departments. However, we would encourage all departments to um, approach their committees. And I think, Pamela, correct me if I'm wrong, it's in our guidance. Yes. Um, to but is it a legislative duty? Not that I'm aware of. Do you see weaknesses there? I mean, I, I suspect if there were um, times whenever departments didn't come to committees, then I could see that there could be a weakness there. Uh, when you say the engagement, when you see envisage the engagement between committee, uh, department and committee, is that simply to engage with the committee to inform them in a transparent way of what the department should submit? Or do you think that that relationship should be the committees informing the departments of what they should submit? And I think that's probably a matter for individual departments and committees. I'm not sure I'm best placed to, to make a judgment call on that. Is there a duty on the finance minister uh, to bring forward a report on the, June mo on, on the monitoring rounds to the assembly? Um, I'm not sure of a duty, but it's certainly um, any finance minister I've worked under has brought um, either an oral statement or a written statement to the assembly, depending on the timing and the circumstances. Has 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 that been always done in a timely fashion? I think there's probably been one. Air, I recall one year where that may not have happened because the assembly is in recess over summer. And there's a delay in June monitoring at, at that stage, um, but I mean, 99% of the time, that's done in a timely manner. Yes. And when you mean timely manner, do you mean days or weeks after a ministerial decision? Uh, you, usually, decision? usually, with um, once executive has made the decision, um, that would happen. I mean, at, at the minute, that would happen on a Thursday, and we would be aiming for the minister to be standing up in the chamber on Monday or Tuesday. As quick as that. Yes. Ten days. The, the, the time that you didn't get that timely uh, briefing to the assembly, how did it affect your working parts in the department? I, I'm not, I, I can't quite remember. It was quite a long time ago. Um, but uh, what would have happened at that stage is we either um, arranged for a written ministerial statement, or if it was delayed beyond that, we would have um, informed departments of the executive's decisions um, on, a, on a draft basis before the announcement so that they were able to understand the outcome um, that the executive had agreed and were able to work off a, a draft position going forward so that there was no kind of delay in what they were trying to achieve.
if if the if the minister had to come on behalf of the executive to the assembly to gain approval for a monitoring round, uh, that surely could be done in a simple vote. Wouldn't have to take a legislative stage process. It would just be uh, it could just be worked out as a simple one-off vote per monitoring round. I'm not aware of the specifics, um, but I would assume that would be correct. Okay, thank you, Chair. Yeah. Okay, thanks very much indeed, Jim. Yeah, as an MLA, one of the biggest concerns I have is about the lack of transparency in the expenditure lines, in estimates and budgets. Because what we find is, for example, if you take this year, go back to the budget document, you will see, by way of example, the Department of Education, £2 billion. No breakdown. How much is for primary, how much is for preschool, how much is for secondary, or anything like that. Why is that? Um, I believe those were um, structures and, and uh, budget structures that were agreed by previous ministers. Is there a ministerial advantage? <coughs> um, not necessarily. Um, I mean, there is a, an ability to transfer within um, spending area, which it move money about within the. Yeah, if you which, keep it pretty vague, then you have a pretty free hand when it comes to moving it about. Is that the idea? I'm not sure that that would be the idea. Is that the practice? Um, I, I imagine that that the additional um, the lack of of a, a large amount of lines would help in that in that area. Yes. yes, but it doesn't help transparency. Quite the reverse. All right, the lack of detail in the in the budget lines. Yes, but it will be for individual ministers to under, to to determine. It's not that. that the department doesn't have that information. It's just that they take they take care not to publish it in the documents they ask the assembly to approve. I, I think one of the issues might be the timing um, of budgetary decisions. So, if you have a budget, for instance, we had one a number of years ago on the seventh of March. If you had it which was practically what, three weeks before the start of the financial year, that ministers may not, at that stage, have made the decisions to allow that level of granularity. But is it not ironic that I, as an MLA, am asked to vote £2 billion, not knowing the breakdown for education, or £5 billion for health, not knowing anything of the breakdown, and there's no assembly document that would tell me that. But if later in the year I go to the public expenditure statistical analysis that's published by Westminster, I can find exactly how much was for preschool, how much was for primary school, how much was for secondary school. Why is that hidden when it comes to asking assembly members to approve it? I'm not sure I would use the word hidden, but um, again, one of the issues is maybe that at the budget stage, um, it's difficult for ministers to have made the final decisions on allocations, depending on at what stage the, the budget was agreed. I mean, this is one of the issues that potentially um, 
um, committees are able to look at with departments when we're looking at budget structures and but in your financial, financial process going you, forward. Have you looked <coughs> at why uh, expenditure lines are kept deliberately vague? Why you don't give the detail? Mm. Have you looked at changing that? And that that would be um, a matter for individual ministers um, as to so how they present it, their. Would not be a matter for the finance minister to say this is how I want it. I mean, one of one of the the things that we would do would be encourage the transparency. Tell me this: when the minister, when you as officials sent round your proposed templates, did it ask for a breakdown? I'm not sure. That the templates for the dry run process? Yes. Mm -hmm. No, they didn't ask for a breakdown. Um, in that way, we didn't prescribe the breakdown that it should be uh, on a row-by-row -row basis, um, but it was to be based upon the existing structure that was in place, because that was all they had to work off. So you're only saying run. to the Department of Agriculture, or the Department of Education, give us your two billion figure. Broken down by row in a similar manner to it is in the current estimate, but that was for the first dry run. Obviously, as this evolves and ministers are more involved in, in looking at maybe structures. the question and again, this is a, this is an important point for the committee. This is when we're looking at lessons identified and lessons learned, because to be able to properly scrutinise and also do appropriate accounting, we need to be able to see that granularity of detail, that next level down. So, you know, at the moment you're doing a, a dry run at quite a high level, but all that's going to do is look at sort of the totals. It's not giving you the tools that actually it doesn't give us the scrutiny tools to be able to identify sort point. of the challenges. Yeah. That's right. The, so the again, that's transparency. That's the dry run process that we have completed at this point was more about the process, putting the processes in place for information gathering and seeing that it can follow through into an estimates document and into the accounts. Um, obviously, there is more work to do, as you, as you say, and the templates from the manual will evolve. I think that so, may be an area we'll see the department. You feed the information for the ultimate uh, public expenditure statistical analysis that's published. Yes. It's July or whatever, uh, across the water. So you have that information, but MLAs never have it. Yeah, we have that information at a, at a slightly later stage in the budget process. So we'll do an aggregate um, for for the actual budget. We'll do an aggregate, and then we'll we'll ask for detailed financial information underpinning that, um, and that will be at the classification of function of government line uh, detail. Where there's no reason why. Uh, when you're accumulating the needs of departments, it couldn't be broken down. Instead of two billion for education, it's 750 million for primary schools, whatever it is. Uh, and that may be one of the, the considerations that the committee might want um, to consider on this one um, and, and talk to with other committees. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thanks very much indeed. Hello. Thank you. I mean, just following on from. From Jim, I, mean, I, I don't disagree with anything he said. I, I think that information would be useful. Is it, would it, is it something that would be helped to provide that information if we ever get to the stage where we're moving beyond one-year budgets? I mean, I understand what you're saying the minister may not have actually decided there, but if we get to a point where the minister's setting two, three-year budgets, then that information certainly should be uh, in a better position to be given to MLAs. 
Yeah, the, um, the budgets themselves, uh, whether set at one year or, or a number of years, will have the same kind of high level um, position as we set them. Um, but there's no reason that, you know, th two or three months down the line or two or three weeks down the line, that further detail would be would be able to be provided at that stage. But certainly, it's something that the, the committee may want to to raise. Yeah, fair enough. In terms of the dry run process, I mean. Obviously, at the stage it's internal, and you're doing it within departments, and maybe between departments. You know, is is there uh, at some point where the dry run process is going to? I mean, you're going to be feeding the information to the committees, but is there going to be like a, a dry run process through the committee or the assembly, or is, is it all certainly internal? The dry run process. It, it's intended. It's it's all dry or dry runs within the departments and, and internal. Um, but obviously, we can provide the committee with the results of those dry run processes and we are fully intended to inform committee at each stage. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair enough. And then just my final point, the programme for government, uh, I'm, I'm just curious how uh, that's going to be uh, detailed or worded within the budgetary process, you know, I mean, how, how are you going to detail commitments, programme for government and expenditure and, and what format is it going to entail? And that's, that's in some ways, for the review of financial process, that's a phase two type of work, uh, and we're not quite sure how that might align. Um, it's something that we are considering on the just on the wider budget process, how we how we marry those two together. Um, and it's fair to say that w we haven't got a particular solution to that at this stage, um, and it's it's very difficult even to understand how. I mean, th there's no key benchmarks across the, the system that will allow us to sort of copycat something. Um, so there, there's, a, there's a piece of work that is required to be done to try and understand how we best align programme for government budget. And that's a piece of work that's probably, I'm straying outside really, and that's a process chair, but if you permit me, um, that's a piece of work that's probably an iterative piece of work where we do something and we, we maybe don't do it right, or we get criticised and we, we, we improve and we, we go on. But that's certainly something that we are considering. But wasn't that one of the recommendations when we were, people were looking at PFG and outcome-related government and process was you kept the number of outcomes low so you'd actually tie them against a budgetary line? So that would be one of your measures of effectiveness? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the issues with that is, um, uh, for instance, I mean, we, we talk a little bit about how do we tie um, a GP down because it's health and maybe it's actually jobs because they're 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 yeah. getting people back into work. So it's trying to understand how we disaggregate it sufficiently, or or maybe the, the argument is maybe we don't disaggregate it sufficiently and we have um, a, a program for government that doesn't quite match the budget. But there's criticism there too. So there, there's a number of ways to understand how we present that particular piece of information. So yeah, it's, it's something that we have on our list to talk to our Programme for Government colleagues and TEO with. Because the logical corollary of everything we're doing here is that everything is budgeted within a budget line. So you know, the whole budgeting process is tied directly to output, and that is how we measure our effectiveness. But as part of that process, and as going back to what the vice chair said, you know, we need to be involved in that process right at the beginning, so we understand if we're going to make program for government outcomes-related government work, it all has to be fully integrated, and we can't be doing it piecemeal for one section or another. But uh, thanks for that, uh, Matthew. Sorry. Uh, thank you very much, Chair. Um, this is uh, 
a, a welcome strand of work. I think you said, Jeff, that it was a um, a relative. The, the change being instituted is, and it's very um, comprehensive explained by family, but the change being introduced is actually relatively narrow in terms of alignment. Yeah, yes, um, it's, it's not meant to do everything. What it is meant to do is um, make sure that whenever you pick up a budget document mm -hmm. and you pick up an estimates document or the legislation that underpins that budget, the two are very easily reconcilable. Um, you can look at one and see where, where that number correlates to another. Uh, and it's um, you, you commendably, although possibly slightly optimistically, said the average man on the street may be picking up these documents. I don't mean to let, let you down too easy by saying my experience in this is that the average member of the Northern Ireland Assembly, will, if, they, if the average member of this committee understands a bit better, that would be a brilliant achievement. Um, uh, so, uh, and I include myself in that. Um, but let me, um, the, the question I want to ask is specifically around this legislation and the NDPBs. Um, uh, that is, you said, Pamela, basically a one line. Is that, will that basically be a one line bill? The, the, the piece of legislation which, which we amends. need to bring in. Yeah, it's, it's very small. It's only four sections to the draft clause at this stage. Right. And that, so it's, 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 it's a primary decision, but it's a draft clause. It's, just, it's not a full bill. It's just a, that we will need to, um, but it will be primary legislation, so it'll have to come before the. Sorry. Yeah, it's an yeah. amendment to the Government Resource and Accounts Act, if I'm correct. Mm -hmm. correct. Um, so When's the Government Resource and Accounts what, what When does that date from? 2007. 2007. Is that an act of the Northern Ireland Assembly? Or? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And what was the purpose? So that act was, that was quite, a, sorry, I'm slightly going back in history, but it's a, that, that act would presumably have been drafted if we, you know, we only restarted, I think, in the middle or late, early middle of 2007. I'm, I'm not quite sure of the, the timing. But then the rev this review, it's a sort of, uh, just to understand the kind of broader historical context. In a sense, there's something a little bit sort of, um, and this is not to knock the process, I think there are understandable reasons. The process has been in abeyance. There, haven't, there weren't institutions here. There's now there's been a pandemic and you're getting it done. But it, it's been slightly kind of jarndice and jarndice in the sense that it started in 2008, immediately the year after this bill was passed. Um, so I suppose my question is really, um, how confident would you be that phase two can be done in an expeditious way, given it's leaving aside political stability in broader terms? Um, I mean, I, I guess we haven't we haven't been concentrating too much on phase two, yeah. um, so I, I think anything I say would was caveated with mm. that. Um, uh, I, I suspect one of the things that we will want to do, um, and Pamela, correct me if I'm mm. wrong, is is make sure that. That phase one is implemented and lessons are learned from that first of all before we before we start considering phase two um but i would say that um i mean there's further misalignments in there and um we're trying to then maybe marry up the budget document itself and the, the estimates document into one combined approach um but if if we have the position where the assembly um, and, and the committee are content with the phase one approach where they can see the two elements in the two separate documents then um, phase two would be relatively quickly I think we'd be able to do it relatively quickly do you, do you think so one of the questions has been and, you, and you've been clear with it, that this is that there is a, this is an important but relatively discrete bit of work aligning um, budget estimates and accounts so that it's comprehensible not necessarily to Joe Bloggs but to Joe Bloggs MLA who's, a, who's on the finance committee um, 
but the t- in a sense, the title of the pro- is the review of the financial process in Northern Ireland, which feels instinctively quite broad. That feels like a description of something broader. Do you understand why we might ask questions about linkage with fiscal council, multi-year budgets, mm-hmm. all of the other broader concepts? Not they're not concepts; they're agreed uh, policy priorities, basically across every party here. And there aren't too many things that it, which the, I suppose my question therefore is: Can you do you see that there's there's an, a, a kind of an importance? For the, for the department kind of consolidating this work and coming up with a, an agreed set of uh, um, an agreed work plan basically around um, that includes everything from fiscal accountability to financial transparency and process yeah um, and again Pam will correct me if I'm wrong but um, the, the wording is a, is a legacy issue um, this was done on uh, and, and emerged the process in England, where it was very much focused on um, aligning estimates and budgets uh, in England, uh, and they they used the uh, review of financial process or review of financial processes, perhaps, um, and we just picked up that wording way back whenever we commenced the project in 2008. Um, there wasn't really a, a regard at that stage for thinking how wide that might appear to others. Yeah, so I appreciate that that, that might it, its its wording is. Is ambiguous at best. I think the original review did cover uh, a slightly wider remit than our current work strand is, mm-hmm. um, and at that stage, then some of the recommendations and the work that the previous uh, finance committee did was a very comprehensive piece of work, and there's a report exists on that. And uh, it was just the the recommendations that could be taken forward in a timely manner at this point. Mm-hmm. But the executive. Board. This was the bit that was, in a sense, work had been done. There was a there was a team already working on it, and it was ready to go whenever institutions restarted, because the department had been working on it. But the second part is more ambitious, as it were. Not that this isn't important, but thanks, Matthew. Yeah. Just, Paul, just a short one. Yeah, it's a very small question. Can I ask the officials to repeat again the bill mm. that they plan, to, or sorry, the act that they plan to um, amend? What was the name of it? It's yeah. yeah. <laughs> Government Resources and Accounts Act. It's Granny. Granny. G or A. N-I. Government Resources and Accounts Act. Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland. I think it's two, no, it's Northern Ireland. I think it's 2007, but I'm not 100% on that. Yeah, you think yeah, it's different? No, I, I don't think it's that yet, but I could be wrong. Yet to be determined. There is a, there's a Westminster equivalent and the Northern Ireland equivalent. Um, it, it directs how estimates and accounts are prepared, amongst other things, um, and that's why this small clause amends the section on how estimates are prepared. Okay. Can I ask, would it be possible to give the committee sight of the proposed amendment? Thank you. Absolutely, yes. Chuck Pat. Chuck Pat, Chuck just small. Thanks very much um, for presenting the thing. I see the statement highlights that there's currently an overcommitment of 12.7 million on the uh, capital in DL. Um, what projects? Are, do we know what projects they are, or, or where that is? Uh, and is there a risk that this could be the position of underspend by the end of the financial? I think we're maybe straying into the next phase of, um, but we can. We're but happy free, to free, free. Let's <laughs> noting the time of the day. Yeah. Maybe part of that, if we move on to the uh, the next phase and then ask, we ask that question specifically. Pat, you're never silent. 
Uh, yeah, so nice thing about this committee. You never have to ask anybody to say anything. Everybody's very brief. Sure. Uh, can we move on to the next item? Oh, sorry. I have one really brief question. Apologies. I'm just on legislation.gov.uk and trying. I can't find a 2007. Uh, Granny, government resources and accounts. Two thousand one. Granny's a bit old. Two thousand one. Yeah. Sorry. That's what I'm talking about. That refers to. But yeah, yeah, and that refers. Uh, clause twenty refers to an advisory group. Does that still exist, or is that was that? Uh, is there is the advisory created by that legislation, or? I'm not aware. Sorry, Matthew, could you read that out? There is a clause 20, and this is perhaps unfair to detain our time, but given we're talking about scrutiny, um, the clause 20 of the Granny um, Act is, uh, talks about an, um, an advisory group and says the department shall consult with and take account of all recommendations made by the group of persons for the time being selected by uh, the purposes for section purposes for the sorry, by the Treasury for purposes of section twenty four section twenty four of the Government Resource and Account Act two thousand, i.e. the UK Act. So I don't know if that's a, a group that is supposed to exist and it would be just a, so I will go sorry. It, if no, it no, it, it, because I mean that's interesting that the question that's raised the question of the advisory group because one of the issues about fiscal council was it was it had been it had been proposed before. So, if you're going back to the department, if you could find out what happened to the advisory group and maybe inform the, inform the committee, and if that is what the fiscal council is, you know, that is how the fiscal council is due to be shaped up. Chair, is there a wider sorry for cutting? Is there a wider piece of work for Rays to do here with regards to what parts of this bill has been implemented and what parts have not? I should say, sorry, I'm, I, because I've clarified myself. So this is a the advisory board, something that's appointed by the UK Treasury, and the Northern Ireland legislation refers to that. So I'm sure buried somewhere in the Treasury that advisory group does exist. But it would be helpful to know, given it's in the legislation, the under, parts of the underpinning legislation, if if it, do, if it does perform some form of function. Um, sorry, Bashir, that's a good suggestion. However, I think. As we progress onwards, maybe we use raise later on when we have progressed onwards and have moved a bit forward through that. Um, can we now move on to October monitoring? Certainly. And Jeff and Pamela, welcome to talk about <laughs> October monitoring. Uh, our briefing paper is tabled at page 15. A uh, letter for the Minister notifying the intention to make a written statement is tabled at page 18. The written statement from the Minister, which we have all heard, is page 19. And response from the department question raised from the research is page 48. Jeff, over to you. Thank you, Chair. Um, October monitoring, um, written ministerial statement covers both October monitoring and the allocation of COVID-19 funding. Yeah. Um, in terms of the COVID-19 funding position, following the Chancellor's announcement on the Friday, the 9th of October, the amount of COVID-19 funding guaranteed to the executive in 2021 was increased to 2.4 billion, providing an additional 200 million. As part of the October monitoring round, departments have identified easements of 25.6 million in relation to previous allocations for COVID measures. Department of Health has provided an assessment of its anticipated costs for the remainder of 2021. In line with that assessment, 526.7 million was allocated to the Department of Health, leaving 73.3 million for the wider COVID response. Mm -hmm. The Economy Minister, support for business schemes um, are estimated to cost 60 million. 
and funding is held centrally for allocations to the schemes. Factoring in previous executive agreement to restriction support, 35 million, and free school meals, 1.4 million, has resulted in 202.5 million available for COVID response allocations. Looking at sectoral support, on the 24th of September, 55.2 million was held centrally for sectoral support for those sectors that had um, to had fallen between the gaps. This included an estimated 10 million of support to the bus, pr private coach, and taxi sectors, along with 10 million. Um, potentially for support to airports. From that funding, an allocation of 7.3 million was made to the Department of Health for hospices, and continuing to hold the 10 million support for airports, leaving, leaving 37.9 million. That 10 million hasn't been allocated yet. Not yet, no. Leaving 37.9 million available for other sectors. The infrastructure minister brought forward proposals for su welcome support on the bus, coach, and taxi industries. In line with that, paper 19 million was provided. Are allocated to DFI and six million retained centrally for that purpose, pending finalisation of costs. This left 12.9 million for other sectors. Um, ministers are considering the support for any sectors within their remit. 100 million has been held in reserve for further support necessary in response to further restrictions. This amount was viewed as striking the right balance between being prudent and looking to the future, whilst also providing the support that is needed right now. In terms of COVID beds and allocations, the departments identified 213.4 million resource dial COVID pressures, allocations totalling 101.9 million from the 202.5 million available funding were announced. Uh, DFC got 36.5 million for local councils, sport at all levels, emergency community support fund, and for much needed food packages. DFE got 2.8 million for the further education sector. Um, DE had had been allocated a total of 49.4 million for both the response to COVID and the costs associated with restarting schools in mm. the education sector. Department of Health got a total of 534 million resource, as already set out, and 32.4 million capital. DFI, in addition to the 19 million for support for the transport sectors, with the 6 million held centrally, and there was an allocation of 10 million for lost income. Um, for the Executive Office, 3.1 million for costs associated with executive communications was allocated. Turning to October monitoring, 28.1 million resource dial, 24.4 million capital dial, and 115.2 million FTC of non COVID funding was available for allocation in October monitoring. Departments bid for 132. Sorry, just, go, just give me the FTC figure again. Um, 115.2. Departments bid for 132. Do we know with the changes in the Department of Communities and the, with the housing executive for the change that went through, has the Department of Communities been able to start thinking about getting a bid for that FTC? So um, yes, we allocated um, 39.3 million to the Department for Communities for co-ownership in yeah. this round, um, pending that Office of National Statistics decision, which we now have received. Um, so the, the announcement recently on the housing executive is slightly different, um, and uh, it will be subject to uh, classification assessments. And, and it's, 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 I suppose, the long and the short of it is it's not ready for. Yeah, well, um, we need to get this FTC out the door by first of April, don't we? Yeah, that that, that is the case. Um, we have a further monitoring round to do that. But yeah, absolutely, there's there's pressure on to make sure that we spend as much as possible. Yeah. Um, in terms of departmental bids, there was 132.6 million for resource dial, 23 million for capital dial, and 71.5 million um, of non-COVID-related pressures um, in October monitoring. Uh, I think that's FTC. 
um, allocations totaling 28.1 million resource Dell, 4.7 million capital Dell, and 71.5 million FTC were announced. Um, looking at the specifics of those for resource Dell, Department of Education got 11.8 million for the Education Authority for a range of pressures, including special educational needs, and 1 million for schools maintenance. Department of Health, in addition to the 534 million from the centrally held funding, they got 6.3 million allocated to implement the review um, and the doctors and dentists remuneration uh, um, pay for doctors, dentists, and GPs. Department of, uh, of Justice got 4.5 million to provide certainty in the lead-in to the transition period for um, PSNI costs. Should Treasury provide this funding at a later stage, then that funding would be surrendered in January and be available for reallocation. Um, the Northern Ireland Assembly Commission got 4.1 million for the amended members' allowances. Uh, the Executive Office got 0.3 million for the F Social Investment Fund. Turning to Capital Dale, DOJ um, got 1.1 million for PSNI necessary capital works in advance of Treasury response on the protocol. Department for Infrastructure got 3.6 million for enabling works at Belfast Transport Hub and essential road maintenance. Um, looking at financial transactions capital, there was 39.3 million to DFC for co-ownership pending that mm -hmm. uh, classification decision. It was 32.2 million to the Executive Office, 30 million of which is the next tranche to the Northern Ireland Investment Fund. An overall outcome, um, this represents the allocation of all funding available for non-ring-fenced resource Dale, uh, with, as Mr Catney pointed out, 12.7 million capital Dale overcommitment, um, and that's, that's an overcommitment that's held at the centre and is not allocated to specific projects. Mm -hmm. um, and there's 43.7 million FTC remaining. Um, the level of overcommitment on capital is manageable at this stage of the year. Um, flexibility to reallocate budgets was provided to departments, and the outcome of that was included in the tables to the statement. And that flexibility will be extended to the January monitoring round in light of the current ongoing uncertainty and COVID response. And we haven't had any response from the minister yet. The minister hasn't had any response from Treasury about uh, additional flexibilities he was requesting. Not that I'm aware of, no. Um, and so then, there's a lot of. I mean, we've got a lot of. We've got quite a lot of uh, money to, we need to spend in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there, as I say, there's there's a hundred million pounds sitting there. The executive made the decision to hold that pending the potential for further restriction periods um, towards the end of the financial year. Should we get additional funding from Treasury at some stage over and above the guarantee early in the new year? Yes, yeah, so there's a monitoring round due in January, so we'll be looking at um, going out to departments early December. I'm going to say it to Pamela, is that right? For uh, yeah, we traditionally do yeah, the final monitoring round in two stages. We get some information in on technical changes in December, and the full monitoring round submissions coming in from departments uh, in the early days, very early <coughs> of January. So, um, yeah, so. Ultimately, then we also have the 100.6 million available to address further COVID pressures in here, and that's what's held at the centre. Okay. Sorry. Uh, I, was, I was just a question, but it was just the 12.7 million that's held centrally. Do you know what the projects will be? No, we will we will allocate to departments, and and we will manage that uh, overcommitment centrally. So um, we, we do that for a couple of reasons. One of which is that we can. We can do that more easily at the centre rather than attributing that to an individual department and having them to manage it. Um, we can have an oversight of what's going on right across all departments. And when we come to January, should there be additional reduced requirements on the capital side of things, then we can um, 
balance out that overcommitment. Um, I mean, we're, we're confident that that will be the case. Um, it's always been the case that we've had reduced requirements in capital in January. Should it not be the case, we have a, a fallback position where we would be able to use RRI borrowing um, to cover that that particular shortfall. But we're, we're confident that we won't need to. Okay. Any other questions? Tim. As usual, thank you very much indeed, and we look forward to your responses as we've outlined during the thing. And uh, best of luck. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Tim, we move on to item number eight of the agenda: consideration of draft report functioning of government miscellaneous provisions bill. Jim, your um, declaration was noted. Um, four members of the session has been recorded by Hansard. The following papers are relevant to this agenda item: uh, Jim's brief at page fifty-one. Uh, draft to the revised function of government miscellaneous provisions bill report tabled at page 52. Proposed amendments report provided by Jim Allister uh, tabled at page 151. Proposed amendment to the report rep proposed by Jim Wells to, be, to the executive summer, summary tabled at page 152. Lifted appendices at one, page 188 and response from the Department of Justice to the bill sponsor at page 192. I uh, just want to say this is the committee's opportunity to consider the draft bill report before its formal consideration and agreement. Ask members if there are any further suggestions or amendments to the report. Jim, do you want to talk about your? Just to say, we've had a long, detailed examination of Jim's bill, and members have made very legitimate suggestions, as, as other, have other MLAs. And uh, I, I thought it was worth including that paragraph to show that there have been numerous amendments offered by the bill sponsor to try and, and reach a consensus on it. Uh, and the bill is very different from the original document that was presented at first reading. So I just thought that would be useful to put that in, in the executive summary, just to indicate that process, which shows um, the health of this committee and the fact that... Um, you know, it has been a good revising chamber for what is a very important piece of legislation. Yeah, Chair, uh, yeah I, I, would, I would tend to agree with that. Uh, I do think it should be acknowledged by this committee uh, the, the movement that has been made in the bill as, as first proposed and put into Assembly. I think that, that if, if that should be acknowledged by the committee, then there's no reason why it shouldn't be in the report. Um, but I, I would agree with Jim 100% when he says that it's the strength of this committee. Now, again, we're probably advantaged by the fact that Jim is sitting here with us, but notwithstanding that, that the, the work that this committee has done and the staff around this, the scrutiny of this bill <coughs> has been very impressive uh, and very, very productive. Um, and I have certainly enjoyed my time on this committee scrutinising this bill and working through all the angles and the issues and the detail of it. Uh, again, this is what we're here to do. Uh, we're designed to do this scrutiny and it's worked very well. So even just at this opportunity, can I take the opportunity to thank the chair and the clerk and all the staff and all the members for their good work on this? Yeah. Jim, do you want to? Oh, Jim Allister, sorry. Do you want to talk to speak about your remaining proposed amendment? Well, I, I'd sent the clerk a, a number of points, which he thankfully took up and made some changes just to clarify a few things. Uh, I did suggest that would it make the report more readable, having gone through the analysis to indicate 
at each point what then the committee thought when it came to the clause by clause. It's all in there. It's just whether yeah. or not there needed to be a linkage. And is, is I, it, it's I, not normal custom and practice to well, do that? If it's not normal custom and practice, I'm not going to die in a ditch over it. I just thought it might make it more readable. So I'm content with the report as is. Um, Could you? Board of Jim Wells' amendment. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I think, the, and I reiterate what Paul said about the the work of the staff. I really do want appreciate that. Fiona, I asked you just because obviously um, the uh, correspondence from the Department of Justice that came back. Could yes. you just out, just outline that? Yes. You recall that initially the Department of Justice raised yes. some issues about the proportionality uh, within the um, criminal offences clauses. So that's section nine and eleven. Nine and eleven. Uh, and then when I made the relevant amendments to those. Reducing the penalty, for example, in clause 11, and making further provisions about available defences, etc. I sent those clauses back to the permanent secretary because it was he who had written to me in the first place, and I received a letter after the committee concluded its deliberations saying that the department effectively now thought that what was being proposed in terms of those penalties was consistent and proportionate, right. which was really their initial. Query. So I thought that was important to state that uh, because I know that those two causes have caused some concern to some, and uh, I think it's a useful uh, letter from the department and needs to be in the report. Okay, Gemma. Yeah, just two things. You see in the report um, on the clause by clause vote um, on clause nine and clause eleven. If you compare that with the minutes from the meeting, it's wrong. Um, it says that there was four on clause nine. It says four yes and five no. But from the minutes, it says that there was one abstention. Have I picked that up wrong? And then clause 11, um, it says that in the minutes, it says there's two abstentions. But in the report, it says there's no abstentions. And could you check? Oh, sorry, Clark. Jim's here. Could you check on that? I'd check on that, and if it requires amendment, I'll have the amendment next week, either to the minutes or to the report. Okay, thanks. And the other thing, sorry, was I don't agree with Jim Wells's um, amendment. I don't want. I don't, don't think it reflects the, the first sentence. Doesn't reflect the views of all of the committee. Um, so I don't agree with it. But, but this is just the group that voted against even the title, the colour, the colour of the ah, through the chair. Uh, through the chair, uh, they objected to the title of the bill. Nobody objects to the title of the bill. That's unheard of in this assembly. <laughs> I've been here 26 years, and nobody has objected to the title of the bill. Uh, and uh, have you asked you want it in blue or white? You just say no. I mean, regardless of. Here, sorry. It's, it's not relevant to what I just said. I just said but, I do not agree to the first sentence of your amendment. End of. Yes, but what I'm saying to you is, no matter where you stand on, through the chair, no matter where you stand on the bill itself, and obviously uh, the three members of this committee have been told that they're against, they've been instructed to vote against it, absolutely, completely. Now that being the case, but can you not accept? Even you could be against the bill and accept that Jim Allister, on many occasions, has listened to concerns raised by MLAs and has changed the bill accordingly. Yes, but through the chair, do you not remember that I raised concerns that I thought it was um, a conflict of interest that Jim was here? I'm sure, I, like for example, I'm bringing through a private member's bill 
and I won't have the chance to sit on the Economy Committee and change it as the committee suggests. So, no, I don't, I don't agree with it. Okay, thank, well, thank well, you, Gemma. Could, could I just say? Sorry, right, just, yeah. just one sec. Sorry, if, um, Gemma, thank you. That's noted. That's thank been you. taken. Matthew, and then Jim. I just make a couple of narrow points. Um, I think, uh, in relation to uh, most of um, Jim Allister's uh, specific paragraph by paragraph, they seem reasonable. Um, uh, I, I, but, um, you know, I, 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 I don't have strong views on the clause by clause recording. If it's not customer practice, I don't see a, a reason to change that. But on Jim Wells's uh, statement, well, I agree with the broad <laughs> um, fact. I think it's. I would slightly amend those words, and I'm happy to provide alternative words or suggest that the clerk does. Um, <laughs> I would just slightly amend them to um, uh, calibrate them a little in, in the sense that I think it is right that, the, from my perspective, the majority of the committee welcomed or you know, acknowledged the fact that the bill sponsor did uh, has responded with um, uh, significant amendments. I think mm -hmm. that's, that's worth uh, acknowledging. I would uh, probably lose some of the language around um, uh, General support. That's not to say, by the way, that we don't have general support. It's more just that um, uh, that I'm not sure the content is is the right one for uh, the bill. But you know, we clearly be voted for most of the um, uh, for most of the clauses in the bill and are supportive of large parts of it. So I'm happy to come back with alternative wording if that would work. Do does it add anything to the bill? Uh, yes, it does, Mr. Chairman, because. Um, I think this has been a very good process, that we have teased out the nuances of this bill. Members have raised issues, and you hear the phrase Jim Alliston reasonable in the same sentence several times, which I've never heard before. This committee, this <laughs> committee has done a great job. Yeah, so therefore, we, no, being serious about it, we have, we have been able to, to, to improve the bill. And I, I've been, seen private members' bill where the, the, the committee has been absolutely entrenched didn't budge an inch, nobody changed, and it came out unchanged completely. This bill has been improved and strengthened uh, by the process, and I think it's worth mentioning that because it is unusual that that's happened. Would you be content for Matthew's revised wording? Yeah, be I'd, I'd happy, I'm happy to suggest something. Yeah, I'll um, put it in my diary to, rem to remind myself that I do that. Now, can, can I just ask here, does this not delay yeah. the report mm. being published, so, which so then will delay the legislation itself? I mean, I'm, what, by, by, by which I mean, Paul, I mean in the next day or two, sending round via email a. But we were to prove, we were to pr approve the report today. today. Well, I, well, in that case, um, I would no. suggest, in terms of agreeing, right, sorry, sorry, excuse, excuse me. Oh, no, sorry, Chair. The formal uh, approval of the report. Uh, would be next week because next week. there were a number of amendments, and it would be generally normal to look at the first draft and then. And then what I've done is I've brought forward a second draft to, to speed that up so that this can now be considered next week. So if there were to be a further amendment, a informal committee agreement could be sought a, on it a, once Matthew brings it, a, that, and then a, that could be included in the third draft of the report and formal agreement next week? I mean, my, my intention is, is just that it's just to literally suggest a couple of changes to James' paragraph. It's not to delay the process. I don't want it to, you know, um, so, I mean, if people are happy, I, I will, if, we can, if we're happy doing it via correspondence, I can email around the group some amended wording. Yeah, I can email to the clerk and she, he can, um, yeah, I can email to the clerk and I will, and, 
Um, now that I've done it on the record, I, unlike uh, with other business, I, I can be held to it. And the government said there's a camera on me. Jared, <laughs> just say I am anxious that we wrap this up as soon as possible because yep. I do want to get this consideration stage yep. into the uh, assembly. And at, so I, I and hope at that, that point, I, week, yeah, I need to seek your agreement to the amendments. Stand fast, Jim Wells' amendment included in the revised draft of the Functioning Government Miscellaneous Bill report. So I need to seek your agreement. All those in favour say aye. Aye. Those against? Against. Gemma. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Roger, I was going to make it's not a facetious suggestion. It might be a difficult suggestion to act on, but I think Gemma makes a legitimate point uh, about an MLA bringing a private member's bill not having the input that I have had because I happen to be on this committee. Yeah. I would respectfully suggest Gemma could bring an amendment to this bill uh, directing that standing orders should provide that any MLA bringing a private member's bill for the currency of the consideration of that bill should be an ex officio member of the committee dealing with the committee stage. Hmm. I think that would be very fair. That would be. All. We'll call it the Gemma Amendment. <laughs> Gemma Amendment. Gemma's law. <laughs> That's interesting. Thanks, Jim. Okay, are you content with that? Sorry, Pat, go ahead. Well, I don't know. I don't want to hold it up or anything. It's just one point. Uh, it's to do with the um, uh, the uh, the Department of Justice have responded uh, to the bill. It's that part of the High Court or a lower court. Can that? I have time. Uh, to try to just amend the structuring of the sentencing rather than the you know for the two years can it be reduced to one year in a lower court yeah so, uh, you're talking about the prescribed sentence in clause 9 uh, yes. and 12 and 11 what yes. it presently provides is that you can either be dealt with in the petty sessions where it's 6 months max or you can be dealt with in the crown court where it's 2 years max it would be possible for someone to move an amendment to remove the reference to the Crime Court and only allow those to be offences that could go to the Petty Sessions. If they did that but didn't change the tariff in the Petty Sessions, then the accused would lose the right to a jury trial. But if they change the tariff? If the tariff in the Petty Sessions has to be over six months, or the available tariff has to be trial. over six months, to give you the right to elect a jury trial. So if, for example, the provision was that in the petty sessions the maximum sentence could be 12 months, then the accused would have the right to elect for jury trial. And that doesn't weaken it in, in any way, it won't hold it back on time. The mechanism is there to do that. Can't you, you, I'm, I'm waiting on a response to amend an amendment. Yeah, you can. Can you amend an amendment? I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Can. Answer that. Okay. I think you can. I think you can. Okay, thank you. Uh, Tim, I need to your agreement. Uh, further amendments are only minor in nature to move to formal consideration agreement of the port at next week's meeting. All those in favour say aye. 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 Any against? I can confirm through the chair that I have emailed my suggested amendment through. It's only slightly slower than my casework. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's move on to item number nine. Sorry, before you go, Sir? I want you, if, if members are content, I can forward this one now. Yes, do that now. This is real time. 
just before your computer crops out. Yeah. This is how this committee rolls. I have the wording in front of me. Yes, so have I. <laughs> no, not yet. Bells uh, yeah. are ringing. I'm content. I'll just watch this when everybody's lips have stopped moving. Obviously, I'm not <laughs> Could Jim read out his amendment? Oh, hold on, I need to go back. Two screens. Mm. There we go. Where are we at? You should have an email just come through from Jim, Jim McManus. I said um, the committee is approving of the fact that the bill's sponsor responded to many concerns raised in the evidence by tabling significant amendments. These provided a better basis for the bill going forward. Enabled, enables the majority of the committee to extend their general support. Okay. That's, that's mine, not mm -hmm. Matthew's. Right, and I will read out Matthew's for the record. There was broad welcome from the majority of the committee that the bill sponsor responded to the many concerns raised in the evidence by tabling significant amendments. These provide a better basis for the bill going forward and allowed broader support for the bill at committee. I think I would be content with that. Well, sponsor, I'm content. Yeah, I'm either. happy enough, yep. yeah. All those agreement, say aye. 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 Your tool amendment. Two minutes. Just to the chair, uh, the, there's a value judgment there. This provides a better basis for the bill going forward and allowed broader support for the bill at committee. Very much a value judgment, that, that in terms of uh, support in itself. And you know that uh, the support wasn't there, it was unanimous one way or the other. Uh, and. Uh, very much a value judgment in that respect, uh, and I'm not the chair, and that's why I can't agree with that. Yeah, fine. Your 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 point is noted. Right. Let's move on to the next item of the agenda. We are moving on to uh, Peace Plus program update and development. The following paper is relevant to the agenda item: Peace Plus program update and development, page 194. We turn to that. Do we have any comments? Uh, inform members that officials are due to provide oral evidence at the next meeting. Are we content to note the paper? Great. Thank you. Uh, item number 10, PAC report on major capital works. The following papers are relevant to this agenda item. The public accounts report on major capital works at page 205. 209, Confederation of the Employers Federation, uh, correspondence page 240. I advise the members of the Department of Finance has eight weeks to respond to the PAC's conclusions and recommendations, and this will be formally presented in a memorandum of reply, which the PAC will consider. 
This committee should not consider the matter further until PIC has completed this process. I think I would like your agreement to note and to follow up as a future item once the PIC has considered the memorandum of reply. Are we content? Construction Employers Federation has offered to provide all evidence on the PIC report into major capital works. I'd like your agreement to schedule into the forward work programme the oral evidence from the the Construction Employers Federation uh, once the PIC has considered the MOR. Are we content? Great. Item number 11 was chairperson's business. We have already done that. Move on to item 12, correspondence. Uh, response from the HM Treasury regarding invitation to officials from HM Treasury to provide oral evidence on the impact of the cancellation of the autumn budget on devolved administrations, yes. page 245. I think we know what. I'd like to come in on this. If you, if yes, please. Be enough. Um, um, Chair, so first of all, um, uh, and it's no criticism of, of, of Phil, but I. I Looking at some of the, I, I think the, the initial email that went was to a, um, a, a sort of generic press office inbox, ironically overseen by people, uh, some people whom I used to um, uh, manage, interestingly enough, uh, in a dim distant past. So, um, but I think the response we've had from the senior policy advisor, the devolution team at Treasury, is um, not acceptable, bluntly. And I say that obviously as someone who used to like that is. Um, uh, I'm not going to say I'm not, I'll moderate my language, but it's not acceptable to send a two-line email back. My proposal, and I know the names of the, I don't know the names. It sounds ridiculous. Uh, there are senior officials we can write to. We could write to a minister. I think it isn't a, it isn't an appropriate response to a committee of a devolved assembly that we get a peremptory email back like that. Uh, I would suggest that we. That we, you consider writing as chair, obviously a text agreed by us to either a junior minister or the relevant uh, senior official in the department, and uh, invite them formally to come and give us evidence, and, um, and that would be uh, both on, um, uh, you know, I, mean, I think the there are several things clearly we'd want to discuss with them, but specifically this year and the fact that you know the um, dispensing with a. Uh, spending review has had a major impact on how we um, budget in the middle of this crisis. So that would be my proposal. Um, sir, thank you very much indeed. From but my perspective, from the chair, is that I found that quite insulting to get a two-line yeah, uh, email back. Completely. <laughs> a, a committee from a devolved administration, bearing in mind, you know, we're uh, we have been tasked with the sort of due diligence of sort of significant amount of. Uh, monies and support that has come from HM Treasury, and therefore it should even be competent of HM Treasury to be interested in what this committee think and be able to answer us suitable questions. Particularly as we have, don't have a budget, we haven't had. Uh, we were told we're heading towards multi-year budgeting. We haven't seen that, and we haven't had any sort of suitable explanation to that as well. So I know it is unusual, but I would second your proposal. And I would say that I shall, on, if the committee are in agreement, I shall write, given the suitable level, to the Secretary of the Treasury. Well, the Chief Secretary of the Treasury. Chief Secretary of the, the Treasury would be the relevant minister. Yeah, I write to the Chief Secretary of the Treasury. Info the Finance Minister here. Info the uh, the various perm secs uh, to do that as well, and say that's not acceptable. And bearing in mind that we are being asked to. Um, conduct a considerable level of oversight on public expenditure. 
the least they can do is arrange to come and talk to us and brief us through the procedures and process that that is likely to be. And that is the due respect that should be shown to devolved administrations. Given the, the um, interest of other de uh, devolved administrations and committees and the previous delighted, would it be delighted to, to info, uh, invited to info the Scottish Parliament and also the, the Welsh Assembly. The two committees. Yeah. I mean, sure, I think if there's a legitimate point. If they are, you know, it's worth asking this. And if they, if there is a considered, if they say that from their perspective, the you know, whatever it is, the Northern Ireland Act or something, you know, precludes them or their, their interpretation of it is that they shouldn't be giving evidence. That's fine, but they should put it on the record and give their rationale for it. Correct, and it won't be a one-page email either. Okay, are we content? Uh, move on to response from the Department for Committee for, Medi uh, for the Committee for Committees regarding solace briefing COVID impact communities. communities. I was thinking that Committee for the Committees. It's been a long day. On page two four six, have we any comments? Well, I seek a members to note uh, response from the department regarding travel agents meeting with the minister to be held on the 4th of October, page 248. Any comments? ask you to note. From the Committee for the Executive Office regarding special European programmes bodies, EU uh, programmes bodies, uh, on page 249. Do, do we have any comments? Are we happy to note? Uh, from the Department update on capital resource transfers in previous budgets, page 250. Members, do we have any comments? Happy to note. Can I have a secure agreement to note the remaining items of uh, correspondence? Uh, to seek agreement to note the information request to the Department uh, and for information and extension has been given to the Department in response to the RHI disciplinary process. Um, can we seek? I think that's been. By one week, isn't that? That's, that's right, Chair. Yeah. Can I, sorry, sorry, I just want to go back and check one tiny piece of information. The letter on capital resource transfers um, is 11819 and 130 in 1920. Did we ask what they were just for those two years, or did we ask for a longer profile? We asked, I think we asked for a longer profile. Didn't we ask yeah. for it to 10 years? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we'd ask, we asked for a decade. It just, I, don't, I don't know if it would be helpful. It might be helpful for us to see it in a table. And I don't. I mean, yeah. Chair, this is one that I agree with Matthew that we need to keep on top of because this did send shockwaves through the system out there uh, when the minister announced. I'm not saying in every occasion it's the wrong thing. What I am saying is you need to be careful when you're transferring money away from capital. So I do think that something we need to keep an eye on. If we need clarification here, yeah, we should seek it. Yeah, sir, I, can we check the um, minutes, Jim? Because I think we asked specifically for a period of up to 10 years about what the process was. I might be wrong, but... Sorry, Jim, I think uh, the 10 years related to the sole authority of the Budget Act. All right, OK, yeah. OK, sorry. Um, Paul, you had a proposal? Uh, no, I, I probably need to be cited on the actual letter that was sent. But if, if we're saying if we're saying we've only asked for two years, then I think we need to get a wider picture. But if we have asked for a longer period and it's come back to say there's been two occurrences which have happened in these two specific years, 
then that answers my query. Mm. Uh, you could we, we could probably delve into why the money was transferred and what it was used for. Mm. Because I know that that was a question that we we raised at the time. I think the, the, the committee just asked for specific examples of when it was used. Yeah. Yeah. So if members want to go back 10, year, ten years, maybe that's the only two examples. But a clarification could be... It's a clarification and just ask what it was being used for. I mean, we know some mm -hmm. sizable sums of that money would have gone to University of Ulster, yep. part of it. Yeah. But that doesn't tie in with the figure that I'm looking at. Maybe we'll do that. Okay. Uh, if we move on to the Forward Work Programme, uh, four members and updated Forward Work Programme is uh, for September, December, as at page 253. Uh, Vice members of the Department have suggested moving the oral evidence on January monitoring to 16 December, as they would have a better understanding of the Department's overall position with the benefit of a further month's spend. Are we content to receive oral evidence on the 16th of December? Great. Remind members the Committee for Finance considered correspondence relating to amendments to the building regulations Northern Ireland 2012. The amendment proposes to introduce a ban on combustible materials on external walls for buildings with stories over 18 metres. In light of this, the Committee asked raised to identify a number of cladding and fire safety experts who could brief the Committee on the suitability of need for the legislation have drafted. Ask members if they content to consider the raised paper at next week's meeting and to, to agree expert witnesses to call. Um, and I think I'm sort of quite keen to do this because I'm quite nervous as a, uh, it's well outside my area of expertise and I want to be better informed before we do something along these lines. If we're content to receive oral evidence from the department on the 9th of December and the outcome of the cons on the outcome of the cons consultation, are we content? Great. Uh, members, do we have any other orders of business? Yes, Mr Chairman. Um, <laughs> we, the poor department can't win because at one stage we're badgering them saying that payments for the coronavirus should have been paid quickly and then if they make a few mistakes we're criticising them. Uh, now nobody has received any money for three weeks um, up for, the latest, for the latest set of coronavirus payments. Businesses who were forced to close down uh, who have um, applied for funding under the new scheme haven't received a penny. Uh, I suspect I know why. It's because they're now acting with more due diligence in case mm -hmm. money goes the wrong way. But of course, these are not people who are on the list of uh, companies that um, shouldn't have got money in the first place. Can, can we drop a, a note to the department to say why? Why is this? Why has nobody been paid anything yet for three weeks? That's when the applications went in. Yep, I'm content for that. Just on that, I would I would agree with that. I've just put in a priority question today to the minister asking what. Uh, how many in my own constituents has been paid up to this point? So I take it the answer is going to be zero. And I was asking what percentage that was then of, of the business in North London that are qualified to get it. That, that alarms me greatly. The executive made a decision within hours mm -hmm. to close these businesses down. They couldn't even get the timing right uh, a few days later. But yet to have these businesses stringing out, <coughs> not being able to trade, not being able to earn money and not be able to provide a living for them and their family and to give them no support even now, I think it's I think it's really poor form and really bad of this executive. And I do think we need to be writing to the finance minister to ask him what's going on. Yep. Can we write to the finance minister to that? Okay. Uh, yeah, it's on the, uh, the programme for work. 
Um, I think Philip wanted to come in on this one, didn't you? Uh, I mean, my issue uh, was kind of in the summer rain, but it was just the overcomplication of actually finding the application form for a, an awful lot of. Uh, I, I don't know, Gemma. I'm, I'm, I'm as <laughs> equal. Yes. I'm as equal. I've got what? Yeah. It's the time of the day. Sorry, go ahead. Philip, oh, I don't know. Try. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> well, we know that, Philip. My, my issue just, I mean, I had an awful lot of people uh, with regard to the uh, grant scheme uh, f from the Department of Economy who had real difficulty with the application process, finding it for a start online because it, it was down, I mean, it was really overcomplicated. And I have a number of people who, because you can only apply online, can't actually, you know, apply online for some reason. So, I mean, it might be worth. Uh, writing in relation to the application process, making it uh, easier accessible or even having a, uh, where you can have a written application form as opposed to online. I would think we should both write to the department, to the Minister of Finance, to the Minister of the Economy, or both, and say what we're doing about this situation, if we're content. Sorry, Gemma. No, it was Pat's oh, confusion Pat. that was... No, 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 I don't have it. No, oh, thanks. You just, Gemma was looking after me. That's great. So listen. Don't make a habit of it. Um, the, the Peace Plus programme, uh, I know we've moved on from it, but uh, we need to have an early engagement, I believe, with the SEUPB. I see down there it's not confirmed. It is in our works programme. Could we get that as soon as possible? And on the back of that, is that funding secured from the British government now? I think the question was for the minister. The minister was trying to find out how much the money funding was coming, and he asked the questions. One of the questions he was asking of Treasury, right. and he was asking of that. And when he get an indication that's of that, that's when we do it because right. he doesn't know what. And we asked the question. I think uh, we asked the question when the minister was here. We asked him, did he know what the quantum was? And he said, no, we didn't have a full idea of the quantum, and that was part of the discussions he was having with the Treasurer. So once he's had that conversation, maybe it's something which you might want to bring that up again next week, Pat. Yeah, may be if we haven't had any further response on that, and then we might actually sort of uh, again add that to the process of what we're doing as well. Um, before we drop below uh, core level, uh, the next. Sorry, sir, before you go on, I've uh, just got a message to say that officials are confirmed for next week. Oh, thank you. Oh. Excellent. Hello. Excellent. Uh, the next uh, item on the agenda is, the is item number. Is the, is the funding confirmed? <laughs> we've got the meeting, but do we know we're going to get the funding from the British government? Of course, we don't. of course we don't know that, Pat. Right. Right. Number 16, item 16, subordinate legislation SR 2020-230, the Financial Assistance Coronavirus Number 2 Regulations Northern Ireland 2020. Following papers are tabled to this agenda item, clerk's brief at table at page 163. SR 2020-230, the Financial Assistance Coronavirus No. 2 Regulations, Northern Ireland 2020, tabled at page 164. The purpose of the draft rule will be to implement the scheme which the Department has been designated to enact and to revise the previous scheme to increase the level of assistance provided for the duration of that scheme. The regulations are subject to the negative resolution procedure. Remind members that the Committee considered the SL1 at its meeting on 21 October and it was content with the policy proposals. There have been no policy changes since the SL1 stage. I'd like to advise members that the statutory rule is led and comes into operation in breach of the 21-day convention, 
and the Department will be writing to the examiner separately to highlight this fact. I like to draw members' attention that the examiner of statutory rules has not yet reported on 2020-230, and therefore, if the committee agree the rule, it will be subject to the ESR's report. Members, do I have your agreement? Therefore, that the Committee for Finance has considered 2020-230, the Financial Assistance Coronavirus Number no. Two Regulations, Northern Ireland 2020 and subject to the Examiner of Statutory Rules report, has no objection to this rule. Are we agreed? Agreed. agreed. If we move on to number, item number 17, Coronavirus Small Business Support Grant Scheme, uh, email from the Chairperson is tabled at page 175, table papers 75. Email from the Deputy Chairperson is tabled at page 176. An email from Jim is Wells is tabled at page 177. Jim, would you like to raise the issue? I thought we'd already done this. Well, I think yeah, we have. I think, no, I think saying, we've covered that. Yeah, I brought it in earlier. I mean, I have nothing to add uh, to that. Okay. In that case, um, ladies and gentlemen. Well, Mr. Chairman, yeah, at this stage of the year, as a veteran of this committee, the only thing we have left to do is to arrange the date for the Chairman's Christmas lunch for members. <laughs> it's a tradition that the chairman always takes the members out for Christmas lunch. I would be delighted to if there is anywhere open, Jim. I would be more than delighted to. I, I can think of several places I would be delighted to have you all in Ballyclare. And if Ballyclare is open, I will invite you all to come and cordially enjoy me. And I will not mention the establishment that I normally frequent for my cappuccinos, because, of course, that would have deemed to be a conflict of I'm interest, I'm actually, and I would have had to I'm declare it as an interest. The previous chair, Dahi Mackay, didn't offer us a sausage at Christmas. <laughs> In that case, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for your forbearance over a particularly long session. Uh, the next meeting is on the 11th of November at uh, 1400 here in the Senate Chamber. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Signed.